is a very special three-part episode of Fans on the Run, a podcast made by, for, and about real estate with the three real babies. And now, here's your host, Ethan Alexander. Part one. All right, welcome, 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 welcome back to Fans on the Run. You're you're in for a treat today. This'll be I've I've done two parters before. Uh, I've done two episodes up separately but with the same person. Two episodes combined into one. This is a historic occasion because this is my first three parter. And we will see how strong of a person I really am. Or whether I just crumbled to the ground. It'll be it'll be entertaining either way. What happens? Doesn't matter. I'm in for the ride. Mystery guest, are you in for the ride? I sure am. And mystery <laughs> guest, how are you doing today? I'm doing very well. And I think I might give a little explanation as to who our mystery guest is, even though you see it in the title. I, I don't know why I do this whole mystery guest bit. Is it, It's not what's my line or <laughs> something like that. Yeah. It's Your name is in the title. It's There's no mystery here. She's the author of 16 and 64. She was the president of the Chicagoland Beetle People fan club back in 1964. Again, only at 16. I started this show at 17. It shows you how much of a failure I am. I'm just kidding. No, I'm not. Oh, you have. Anyways. <laughs> you have. Enough about my ego. Marty Edwards, welcome to Fans on the Run. Well, thank you. I'm glad to be here with you. Just for the record, uh, I have three people to interview. Did I get those details right? Yes, three people. And the what's my line, I always say, will the real Beatle fan please stand up? And the three of us can all stand up. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You know? Uh, Now I'm just thinking about that Davy Jones bit from that one episode where he's like, I am standing up. (laughs) Oh, yes, that's cute. That was cute. (laughs) So... I want to ask, other than the Beatles these days, what kind of music are you listening to? These days, uh, I haven't been listening too much. Um, I love all kinds of genres of music, and the Beatles are always on the front burner, so I'm always listening to Beatle music. Um, But, um, you know, I love all the old groups. I've been listening to Chad uh, um, Jeremy because he's been going to the Beatle Fest. Mm -hmm. Along with uh, Peter Asher. And Peter Asher also, yes. He's all uh, been attending the Beatle Fest. Yeah. And they're putting out new things all the time. Well, I I love Peter Asher's show on uh, the Sirius XM Beatles channel. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. He's got, like, such a soothing voice. Does. And it's like everything's gonna be okay because Peter Asher is talking to you. Sure, yeah, <laughs> that's true. But we're not here to talk about Peter Asher. We're here to talk about the Beatles. Great, that's my al- up my alley. The Beatles, yay! Yeah. For the folks out there who don't know, the Beatles were. No, I'm not even gonna explain. You're you're listening to the show. You know who the Beatles are. So, I want to jump right back to the beginning now. How did you first discover the Beatles? Well, I was in high school, my junior year, in 1963. 
And um, on Saturdays, I would go down to the Art Institute. I was also interested in art. Mm -hmm. And I took classes at the Art Institute of Chicago. And I'd ride the train down. And fortunately, our teacher would allow us to play our favorite radio station, which in those days was WLS. Mm -hmm. So we had kind of a unique situation in Chicago because VJ label was in Chicago. That it was. Uh-huh. And VJ label uh, had acquired a contract to uh, release some Beatles songs earlier than elsewhere. And they had released Please Please Me and, and I, a couple others. But it was in the spring. It was of like 60s. Please Please Me and I think like From Me to You. From me to you. Yes. Okay. But we were, I was down at the Art Institute. We were listening and uh, we heard the Beatles for the first time and thought they were great. What was that like? That was just wonderful. Just hearing Please Please Me. It was different. You know, I always liked R&B and I always liked, because we were so close to Detroit and um I thought, oh, this this is a different sound, kind of R&B, but it, it's a different sound, you know. Well, all the kids in the class like them so much, and, the, and WLS kept playing it, that we all decided one Saturday we were going to walk over to the WLS station. And we did. And... Um, became really Beatle fans then. So it was in the 60, it was in spring of 63, summer of 63. So way ahead of the rest of the Americans. Kind of ahead. Um, And when we started school that next September, you know, there was always, there was already a following in Chicago for the Beatles. So um, I started, had six other girls and myself. We all liked the Beatles immediately. And it was only natural for us to start a fan club. So right when school started in September of 64, we started our fan club. And it was called the Chicagoland Beetle People. And that's how I first heard of the Beatles, was back in 63. So you and started course- the Chicagoland Beetle People even before the rest of the country had really heard it with like, I want to yeah. hold your hand. Oh, they had uh, the Ed Sullivan show wasn't until the following February, I believe. So yes, we had we were into our fan club and the Park Forest Star, that's the suburb that I lived in, Park Forest, ran we talked them into running several stories on our fan club and they would sort of just put a little blurb in every week, how's the fan club doing? What are they doing? Well, it was distributed not just in Park Forest, but to many of the surrounding Chicago um, suburban areas in that in that area. <laughs> and um, so we were up to like 500 members and nothing flat. Really? Oh yeah. So there was a big fan club base in Chicago before the Ed Sullivan Show even aired. And I, I don't take know that New York. No, I don't know if you. A lot of people know that there was. I, I, I can honestly say that before today, I did not know that. Mm-hmm. So by the time the Ed Sullivan show rolled around, of course, I'm sitting on the floor watching the Beatles, and my mother sitting in a chair next to me. And 
I said, you know, I'm going to meet them. And she said, oh, no, you know, thousands of girls want to meet them. And I said, oh, no, I'm going to figure out a way. I'm going to meet them somehow. <laughs> and I did in the end. So. <laughs> Well, how, how did that go from just a dream to it being reality, you meeting the Beatles? Well, I mean, you know, back in those days, and I, not, I don't think so much nowadays, but in those days, fan clubs were pretty important because, you know, we didn't have social media. We, didn't, we couldn't get on Facebook and say, okay, everybody meet at the park. We had to plan things. And it took two weeks before, you know, we could have a rally or something of this nature. So what our fan club did was I would call 10 people on the phone and those 10 people would call 10 others and we'd had like a relay so that we could get the word out to people. And we would meet in groups and have rallies and, you know, make cookies for the senior center and try to get as much publicity as we can as i said the park four star was writing articles on us now the important question mm -hmm. is were those cookies for the senior center beetle cookies oh uh, no i don't believe they're just just cookies that we threw together but they had the beetles heart in them i'll tell you that because we all made them with love so and took them over and um well, that's all that matters that's all that matters really you know yeah. if they're made with love so yeah, they're still cookies <laughs> yeah <laughs> anyway um so we did real well with the fan club and i kept thinking how in the world are we going to meet them well the girls and i talked and we said well, why don't we try to present them with a plaque and that's eventually what we did. We presented them with a plaque at their 1964 press conference in Chicago. And we had called, um, we did call um, George's sister because she lived in Southern Illinois. In Louise? Benton. Louise lived in Benton, Illinois. And we called her on the phone one day. We had our notes in our hand, shaking and called her and asked her, would you please sponsor our fan club? <laughs> and she said, well, what do, I, what do I have to do? We said, well, you don't have to do anything. We just want you to sponsor our fan club in name and hopefully we can meet you sometime. And she said, sure, I would love to. And she suggested that next time she comes up to Chicago, she, would, she took our phone numbers and she said, uh, "We'll get. I'll call you, and we'll have lunch together." That's awesome. Which really, it never really happened. The next time I met her, or the, saw her, was at the Beatle press conference, September fifth, nineteen sixty-four. But she was there, and I did speak to her. So, did you ask her about that lunch? That never yeah, happened. Where was, where was our lunch? <laughs> I asked her. Where, we never did have lunch, Louise. <laughs> But then the next time I met her was 50-some years later at the Beatle Fest in Chicago. And she was presenting, and I was one of the authors, and I went over to her and introduced myself. And I don't think she had a memory of, of, of us, but still, 
it was kind of interesting to meet her after all those years. So when you present, what was the plaque that you presented to the Beatles? Um, well, it was a scroll. We, you know, our, our fan club never asked for dues. We just asked if you'd like to join, just send, you know, send us your information. And we never asked for dues, but we went to the Hobby Lobby shop in our local park forest and tried to find out how much plaques would cost. Because we really had no money. All the paper and the things that we were using for our fan club, we had to supply them by babysitting. We would babysit and supply, you know, get our supplies and so forth. So um, they're pretty expensive. And I didn't know how we were going to pay for it. But one, uh, one of the fellows that was in our club, he talked to the Hobby Lobby and he said, we'll give you a write-up in, in our high school newspaper, a free ad, if you'll give us half off on the plaque. And he did. It worked? <laughs> it worked. Now, the and important question is, did you follow through on your promise? Did they get a write-up in the newspaper? Yes, they did. They were in the school newspaper. We had to put it in the, an ad in the school newspaper. Fantastic. <laughs> so anyway, um, we, t you know, I had still had no money. So I thought, well, why don't we ask some of our members just to send a quarter in, a quarter each. <laughs> and their names will be written on the back you know, on a piece of paper and taped to the back of the plaque as contributors. So my mother had gone over to the next town to us and got and gotten a post office box for us. Because, you know, at that time, well, in 63, I was only 15 years old. I couldn't get a post office box. <laughs> so um, she got a post office box and all these quarters start coming in to this little post office in Richmond Park. And we had just enough, we made just enough money to buy the plaque and to have it engraved. And um, we did put everybody's name that contributed on the back of the plaque in a letter. Do you remember what the uh, inscription said? Oh yes, I do, <laughs> from heart. Could you please recite it for it us? It said to four great guys, who with warm hearts and loving ways have earned this plaque in recognition of outstanding worldwide musical achievements from your fans in Chicago, the Chicagoland Beatle people. That's I'm going to tear up. I know. It's so sweet. Yes. So, so we, we did a manage. Oh, I had to make the club grow. And I figured, what what am I going to do? We're already having rallies, going here, going there. Um, what exactly did a Chicagoland Beatle people rally look like? Oh, we'd all meet at the park and we'd make posters of our favorite Beatles and wave them and, you know, have, um, oh, the you know, paper streamers and just walk around and have cookies and talk about our Beatles. That's what we did played records on our radio on you know little transistors and things like that or discussed um 
you know, but I, I tried to make it grow and I thought, well, what are we, what are we gonna do to make this grow? We've already got the newspaper. We've already, I can't depend on TV. And there was only radio. That was all that was left back then. So I thought, aha, WLS in Chicago, channel 89. So we started going down to WLS because as you walked in, I remembered from going with the kids from the Art Institute, you could see the DJ on air in a glass panel. And so we would hold up signs and hold up things about our club and our post office box. And they would read them over the air. <laughs> it, it was that easy? So we got free advertisement and our club grew to over a thousand members. Oh, wow. Yeah. Just because of showing up at WLS. Well, I mean, this poor post office, little post office in Richmond Park was just, they said, we're going to have to give you a bigger mailbox now because all this stuff kept coming in and they just put it in boxes and give it to us, you know. Oh, wow. But, but like I said, we never charge dues. It was just if you want to join, you know, please let us know. So um, and we and I sent out newsletters to the point where at a at a certain point, I it was really difficult for the postage. And, you know, paying postage for all that. So I had we had to cut them way back the newsletters. <laughs> but we would um, send out newsletters if you were part of the club and you'd get a newsletter probably every three months. But that was it. And because we became such a well-known Beatle fan club from WLS, um, one of the TV shows asked us to please go. It was the Lee Phillips show. And she asked us to come on her show after we met the Beatles. Well, we didn't even know if we were going to meet the Beatles. Or she, no, she didn't say it that way. She said, after the Beatles are here in Chicago, would you come on our show? And we said, yes, we'd love to. So we were able to go on the TV show after the Beatles. How did, how did the TV show go? Oh, it was, it was wonderful. We she had us come and sit down and by that time i had um there was another fan club there too that that was a large fan club so it was the two of us that she was interviewing and um i had some eight by ten glossy black and white pictures from the press conference that someone had given to me and i was able to talk to to the audience, the TV audience, about my pictures. And those are the ones that, some of them are in my book. They had never been published, so. For the record, go buy her book right now. <laughs> I wish you would. That would be great. My, I, I, uh, I am, I'm going to force all of my listeners with all of the strength <laughs> I have. Oh. Well, so, there was another Beatle fan club in chicago another big beetle fan club and they were able to make it into the press conference also i don't know the story there they ours was the chicagoland beetle people and they were the chicago beetle fan society but they were in the northwest suburbs and see we were in the south south and southwest and south suburbs was there any so. rivalry 
No, I mean, I was surprised that they got in. I mean, it was just so difficult to write letters, call people, and you know, just before the Beatles arrived, we were sent a little letter from Triangle Productions because we had been writing to them. And they were the people that were bringing in the Beatles. <laughs> and it was an invitation for us all to go, uh, all the, the main people in the club, the girls that ran the club, to go to the um, press conference. Well, two days before the press conference, we got a phone call that those invitations had all been recalled. Oh. And I didn't know what to do because I had the plaque. And the only thing that I could think of, I talked to my parents. I said, we've got to get this plaque to the Beatles, even if we don't present it. How are we going to do it? And my mother said, well, maybe you could call Lee Phillips, you know, call the TV show and ask the, because it was a producer, the, uh, one of the, um, one of her cameraman and assistants were helping us. So I was able to call them and ask them, would they please present the plaque for us? And they agreed to do that. Oh, wow. So I got the plaque to them, but you can imagine how we felt. Yeah. And it, it was only by chance. My dad had driven us all down in a station wagon. And um, he, um, he said, I'm going into the bar in the Stockyard Inns for a drink, uh, to have a beer are you guys going to get in line or do you want to come in the bar with me? And I thought, well, can we come in the bar? I'd like to have a Coke and chips. And he said, sure you can. But only three of the girls wanted to go into the bar. The other ones wanted to go stand in line to wait for the concert. <laughs> so we go in there and we're sitting, chatting, sitting at the table, having chips and the Coke. And we looked over to talk to my dad and he was sitting right next to Derek Taylor talking to Derek Taylor oh wow and I said oh my god I mean I started screaming I went it's Derek Taylor we jumped up so fast that our chairs flew <laughs> and we ran up to Mr. Taylor and we started talking to him about our plaque and why we couldn't present it and this and we're a fan club and and he's saying, hold on, hold on. I don't understand anything you're saying. <laughs> Wait a minute. And my dad then said, this is my daughter, and she has a large fan club, and they wanted to present a plaque to the Beatles. So he said, well, where's the plaque? <laughs> well, the plaque was with Lee Phillips. And they were, but all the press was milling around in the lobby. And I said, just a minute, don't move. I will go look for it. So I ran out into the lobby and don't you know, I ran into Lee Phillips, Lee Phillips assistant and the cameraman and I just pulled the plaque out of their arms. And I said, I gotta show it to Derek Taylor. I'll explain later. So I ran back in, he was still sitting there. And he said, well, the plaque looks lovely. He said, why don't you just present it to the boys yourself? 
well, you know, I almost fainted right there on the spot. <laughs> I, was like, I mean, I what? So he said yes. So he grabbed um, something off the bar, and it was a piece of note paper that said "Stockyard Inns" on top. And he wrote, "This is a large fan club. Please let these girls up to see up into the press conference, Derek Taylor." And he says, take this and get by the Andy Frey and ushers with it. And I'll see you upstairs. Please tell me you still have that piece of paper. You know what? I had it for years and years and I cannot find it now. Oh. I put it somewhere special to keep. I can't figure out where I put it. I cannot find it. Uh, I, I, you'll, you'll find it someday. Uh, anyway. so Don't give up hope. We stood by this little Andy Frayne usher who was probably in his, uh, probably 20, 21, 22. And, you know, we were 16 then. And he said, press plat, you know, because they weren't let, uh, letting anybody in now. That's what they had said. Only if you have a press plat. He says, your press pass, please. And I said, I don't have it. I have a note from Derek Taylor. And he pushed it away. He pushed it away. He didn't want to see it. And I said, oh, please, it's a note from Derek Taylor. No, he pushed it away. So my dad was standing behind us (laughs) and he took all three of us and pushed us forward. And we went trampling over the poor Andy Frayne Usher. Oh. (laughs) And up the stairs where everybody else was going. That's awesome. And he's yelling, he's screaming at us, you girls come back. And my dad's saying to me, I looked over my shoulder and my dad's saying, keep going, keep going. So that was such an eventful day. And then we were upstairs, Derek Taylor saw us. He sat us at a table right in the front. And he told me, he says, I'll come over and let you know when you can come up and present your plaque to the Beatles. That is so nice. Derek Derek Taylor nice has man. always I, seemed like such, such oh, a stand-up guy. He was so nice. In fact, he said to me afterwards, the three of us, he said, now you girls go with the press after the conference is over. He says, because they get to stand right at the bottom of the stage and you'll be standing right there with them. So he said, just follow the press. Oh, I mean, wow. I wouldn't have known that. And he was just so nice to us, you know? So Derek Taylor basically got you front yes, yes. at the front to, of a Beatles concert. That's right. And we and got us really into the conference after all those months of planning and, you know, doing everything with our club. It was just sheer luck that we ran into Derek Taylor. If we hadn't been in that bar, we wouldn't have. So how did it go actually presenting it to the Beatles? Like, I'm, I'm sure the nerves were flying off the any conceivable well, I, radar. I'm sitting at this table after he sat us down, and I'm all of a sudden I'm thinking, you know, am I dressed? Is my hair combed? I don't even know, you know, because we were just in such a frantic. Uh, I said, um, you know, my two friends were with me, Jan and Lynn. I said, well, I don't, I don't know what to say to them because I, I hadn't planned anything. I gave the plaque to Lee Phillips. 
<laughs> what are we going to say? I says, hurry up and figure out something for us to say. What are we going to say? Anyway, I'm in thought, and Derek calls us up, and we're standing right behind the Beatles on the right side. And the one that was the most closest was John. He was my favorite Beatle. Oh. He was sitting there, and he's turned around, and I've got this frown on my face because I'm trying to think of what am I going to And he looked, and he made one of his goofy faces at us, and he waved his hand behind his back at us, you know, and right then, everything went out of my mind completely. I was just in a daze. <laughs> and uh, the plaque became so heavy in my arms, I thought, am I going to be able to get this plaque up on that platform? My knees became weak. I had Jan on one side of me and Linda on the other, and Derek says, announced us. <laughs> so... I, my knees were weak. So they grabbed one arm and the other one grabbed the other one and we all three stepped up on the platform at the same time and we were face to face with Ringo and John. Oh, wow. Yeah. It was just such an exciting time for us, you know. And I said, this is from your Chicago fans. I said, we'd like to present you with this plaque. And I said, from the Chicagoland Beetle people and everybody in Chicago. And I said, and please take it because it's really heavy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I didn't know what I was saying. I was just, you know, in a daze. That's like the best thing you could have said. <laughs> <laughs> so John said, oh, heavy, hey. Well, I better take it before you drop it. <laughs> that must have just been... I, I, I can't so, even imagine. So we got to um, be up on the platform and talk, and George was down a little bit, and we shook his hand, and Paul was down even further, and he was talking to the press. And the press, we knew a lot of the DJs right up front from WLS, and they started calling us up to the front of the platform and asking us questions, the girls. <laughs> and I'm thinking, well, the Beatles probably don't like this. They're asking us questions. <laughs> but um, they I probably loved I, it. I said I was numb. And so John pinched my arm and he goes, well, you feel that, don't you? So, anyway, I couldn't wash my arm for quite a long time. <laughs> that is just magnificent. So, it was a fun time, and it was a great experience running a fan club. I learned a lot. I learned a lot of life skills, you know, how to do things, how to talk to people on the phone. And um, it was just a fun time for us. I want to ask, what is your absolute, apart from the, you know, meeting the Beatles and the plaque, your favorite memory of those days in the fan club? Well, just being in If you the can fan pick club, just one. Which just, I, being, just being, you know, among the fans and our rallies at the park 
and everybody on the same page. And, you know, we had to make our voices heard <laughs> so that the press would hear us and then they know how much we love the Beatles. So, I mean, we did. And I think we did it successfully back in those days. You know? So far, we've been talking about in 63, 64. How, how did the rest of the decade go for the uh, Chicagoland Beatle people? Well, the rest of it went, I, I would be in my senior year that next year. And we ran the club one more year. Um, some uh, A group of girls from Chicago Heights, which was the next town, were becoming, they were a little bit younger than us. So they sort of took over the club. I helped them take the club over. And um, I was gonna help them present, try to present something the next year when the Beatles came in 65. <laughs> but that, that never worked out. However, they did take the club over uh, because we were all going off to college. You know, so that was um or our jobs or whatever we were doing but we were graduating high school so it was difficult for us to run a club and we had tried to charter the official beetle fan club in um liverpool to let us be um one of their satellite clubs but never heard back from them we sent them a letter and we never heard back so that didn't happen but um, there's a club on Facebook now. It's called the Chicagoland Beetle Fans, not Beetle People. <laughs> and uh, so it's close, but I mean, you know, different because you don't have to meet in groups anymore. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. And you can't anyway with the pandemic. So, <laughs> yeah, you can't have any more rallies with the cookies and the banners. That's right. That's right. So, but anyway, so, and. I had met Patty and Pat, uh, the three Beetle Babes were called. Uh, they went to the Beetle Fest um, several years in a row. And we all are first generation fans. We all wrote books about our experience with the Beatles. And um, we're just number one fans. And we decided we're going to band together and uh, try to do something together. That's why we've done this so that's how the uh three beetle babes kind of united yes yes uh-huh and you met them for the first and time all, at the we're all fest. fan club pre we were all fan club presidents various fan clubs so we all had this in common you know so i take it like the first few times you met you were just comparing notes yes but we're, we've been on several panels together and um, fan club panels and Sarah Schmidt has moderated uh, us uh, on several occasions. And Shout out to Sarah Schmidt. Hi there, Sarah. Go listen to her episode thank, of Fans on the Run. Thank you for all that you do for us. I really appreciate it. She's always helping us. Sarah's, Sarah's just a sweetie. She is. Definitely. So I want to ask... Um, since mainly we've been talking about the early stuff, uh, how did you feel when the Beatles started getting more e experimental towards the middle of the 60s? Well, well you know, um, so the Beatles have always been a really huge influence on my life. I mean, not only from 15 years old, but 
I went to the Art Institute. I loved art, but that sort of sealed the deal. I was going to go into fashion because I love their fashions. <laughs> so there, there was that influence from them. Uh, so not only in music and fashion and style, but more importantly, the Beatles um, sort of, um, you know, helped us feel good about ourselves. I know they, they did me. And I'm sure other people too. How do you and they, mean? They inspired us creativity. Well, you know, um, like I said, to be able to be 15 or 16 years old and run a fan club like that with over a thousand members, you've got to you've got to believe in yourself, and you've got to believe that you can do it. And they sort of they were always positive. They always had that positive note you know <laughs> that that they brought into our culture the and beatles were as you know the stones were all you know rebels the beatles were even from the beginning all about positivity they did they always did and um so and i think that the american youth at that time i mean i remember kennedy dying and we were all so down and then the beatles came so they sort of brought us back up again. So I always looked up to them. I thought they were positive. Um, and, you know, I my one of my albums that I really loved was um, Rubber Soul. <laughs> and I think Rubber Soul was like one of the first album albums. I mean, it was like all the ones first one I bought was Meet the Beatles and then I bought uh, Please Please Me um, but uh, Rubber, Rubber Soul was sort of um, an album not just songs you know what I mean? Yeah where it, it all kind of singular. was it sort of all came together as an art form it was sort of an art form at exactly that point. Yeah, and that's what I liked about Rubber Soul that was and of course my favorite song is in my life that that's my mom's favorite Beatles song yes that's and it's that's one of my, mine yes I love it yeah so um and well that was the album that inspired Brian Wilson to do Pet Sounds not the British oh, one it was the American one. Oh, okay all right well that I didn't know but anyway Learn something but, new uh, every day then yes you do you know so I mean I liked all the British, you know, and then that next year, all the British groups started coming into Chicago, brought not by Triangle Production, but by Ed Pazder Production. And um, he brought, you know, the Kinks, Chad and Jeremy, Peter and Gordon, uh, the Stones, <laughs> I mean, Herman's Hermits, just all of them that you can think of, um, the Animals. Dave Clark Five. Yeah. And I got to, um, because I joined his fan club, the Ed Pasner fan club, they had a meet and greet for all these groups. So I, I was able to meet them all. You met the just kinks? All of them. Just for a brief moment, it was just, you know, they were sitting at a table, you'd walk down, you'd shake their hands, and you'd tell them how wonderful they were, and you love them, and... Um, you were a big fan and um but it was that was brief 
Uh, did, did they sign any albums or anything? You know, yes, they did. But for some reason, I didn't get a lot of signatures. I could have, but I didn't. What signatures was, did you get? I, I got to tell you a little story. When I would love stones, to hear a little story. When the Stones were there and we were going to meet the Stones, I had a Beatles sticker. And it was about the size of the palm of your hand. Okay. So I was going to go down and shake everybody's hand. Well, when I got to um, Mick Jagger, now it was, you got to remember, it wasn't a peeling stick. You had to lick this. <laughs> you know, it was one of the, you didn't have peeling stick back then. So here I put it in my hand um, so that the sticky side was up. And I took Mick Jagger's hand and I said, oh, it's so good to meet you. I'm so happy to meet you. I'm sticking, I'm adhering this sticker, this Beatles sticker <laughs> in his hand. And he stepped back and he looked at it. And I thought he was gonna get mad. He goes, oh, you cheeky little devil, you. And he started roaring with laughter. <laughs> he liked that. <laughs> Oh my God, that is magnificent! Yeah, so so we did get to meet a lot of the, um, you know, the invasion groups. The British invasion came over that year, so that was '65. And then I graduated. And I went to the Art Institute, and then all the psychedelic stuff started coming in. You know, the a little bit on Revolver, and then you go into you know the other things but i i really liked um when they worked in the studio because i loved it when they started um working with different sounds and different instruments mm -hmm. and different like george's indian stuff yes the indian stuff and the uh, using the you know synthesizers or whatever they had back then and making different sounds all i loved all that so we all we always loved all you know and i have all the albums all my original albums i still have them well now i want to ask you some kind of related questions mm -hmm. what we you already said what your favorite beatles album was which was rubber soul mm -hmm. what is your least favorite beatles album i don't really have a a least favorite i mean really I would say one of the albums that had maybe a lot of filler songs in, but I don't really know which one that is because when you look at them all, I mean, they all have marvelous separate songs on them, you know, that, mm -hmm. that are just wonderful. So you can't say I have an album that's my least favorite, but... Um, yeah, so well, that, I that's always I like a toughie all. for people. That's always a toughie. Well, yeah. now I want to ask, what is your favorite Beatles song? My favorite, my favorite Beatles song is "In My Life." In my life, oh, you said that already. I <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that's I love it. It's just wonderful. The lyrics are just outstanding, and the melody, it's just wonderful. So. Now I want to ask, let's see if you have one of these. What is your least favorite Beatles song? Uh, uh, I, you know, I don't. Again, I don't have a least favorite. I never liked my Bonnie, but I don't think, and some of those 
early ones that they recorded, but I don't think that was their song. I think they were just songs that they were recording. Yeah, just Tony Sheridan's like, hey, play yeah, behind Tony me. Sh- yeah, I don't, I didn't um, care for that too much, but all the rest of them are fine. That that actually may be the first time someone's has, someone has mentioned the uh, Tony Sheridan stuff as like their least favorite, which yeah. it's about time. Well, I just... I just never cared for it. I mean, you know, but everything else I liked. A lot of the ones that they did of other people's, like Act Naturally. I know I shouldn't say this, but... You're allowed to say whatever you want on this show. Uh, you know, it's it's Ringo's song, and I'm sure so many people loved it. I, I didn't like the song itself, but that's not his song either, you know? He's just singing <laughs> It's Buck so, Owens. Yeah, Buck. Okay. Well, I didn't <laughs> didn't realize that. <laughs> All right, I, I think it's Buck Owens. I, I may just be speaking out of my ass here. Okay. And uh, last of these quickfire questions. Who's your okay. favorite Beatle? Well, John was all. But you know what? I love I loved all the Beatles. I do. And But everyone's required to like have well, a favorite like, Beatle. When you're fifteen years old, it's a big deal to have a favorite beetle and we would make plaques we'd make a, we'd find signs and try to blow them up and or or actually draw them and put them back to back on a, a stick or something like a um, you know popsicle stick or yeah. something that we could wave in the air and so it was pretty important to have your favorite beetle and I always loved John because I always thought he was sort of the leader of the group and I liked the way his art, you know, he was into art, I was into art. And um, so he was sort of my favorite Beatle all the way around. And when he turned around and waved at me that day, honest to God, you, I was like ready to just fall on the floor. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I would say John Lennon and I loved all the shows that they had yesterday for John. Yeah. Or day, day before yesterday. As, as of recording, it is yeah. the 10th of October. Yesterday was the 9th of October. And yeah. there were all these wonderful tributes. Beautiful tributes to him. Uh, I'm, I'm just saying that for reference because this may be uploaded a bit in the future. Well, that's true. Yes, that's true. <laughs> oh, but some of them were just great, weren't they? Oh, really? They really were. So, and Jude Kessler, she has one in her last book. God bless Jude Kessler. She has a picture of me right in the middle, September 5th, 1964, presenting the plaque. It's in her book, too. So, So I'm in Jude's book also. Look at you. You're in everyone's books. Oh, my goodness. You're you're like as much of a celebrity as the Beatles are. Oh, gosh. Wouldn't that be great? No, no, no. I wouldn't like that. So I came to Phoenix and settled down. And, um, you know, I have a, a co-author. And um, he passed away two years ago with ALS. Mm-hmm. And I he's the one that got me to do this. Because I was he was my editor when I was doing... Um, I used to work on the Elks Track newspapers, and I would do advertising, uh, advertising, and he was the editor, and 
we were talking one day and I said, oh, I, something about my beetle pictures. He goes, what beetle pictures? And I said, well, I have 18 glossy non that have never been published, eight by tens. So he said, oh, you do not. I said, I met them. So I showed them to him and he goes, why aren't you doing something with these? They were sitting on my closet. And I said, well, I really don't know what to do. <laughs> he said, well, let's get a book together. I'll help you put a book out. I said, well, I know nothing about writing a book. <laughs> he said, well, we'll do it together. So he that, sort of- That part's irrelevant. Yeah, he made the schedule for me. He made up the schedule and he said, okay, you need to have chapter one done by this time, you know, but so that was nice. And we got the book out. Could you and tell I us a little out. bit about the book? Uh, the book just covers, um, a, actually, it's a more of a memoir on my teen years. And it talks about the town that I grew up in and how safe it was. And then the next chapter is about my high school and, you know, things that we did in those days that people probably don't even think about doing now. But, I mean, we loved it all, you know. And then... And then it gets into the Beatles and the fan club and the Dave and you know, the British invasion and my going to the Art Institute and then my finally getting my to go to London at the end of the book, which is what I had wanted to do all those years. <laughs> so, and that's basically what it is. But and Joe wrote, wrote the preface for me and he wrote um, chapter ten. He put chapter ten together, which is about things that things from the 60s you know so basically i wrote one through nine it's about the beatles i'm, I'm gonna ask this question to to the other two uh describe each of your fellow uh beetle babes in one word oh my goodness and we'll we'll see what happens at the end where you all have one word descriptions. Okay, Pat is tenacious, and she that okay. I'll, is that my one word, or can I describe her further? You can you can describe her further. Okay, well she just is a hardworking person, and she put her book out. You know, I don't know what year it came out. Maybe. 2014 it was just before mine and just a friendly friendly person and just always there to help you you know and she had been to many of those beetle fests before i ever came on board and um she was right there to help us and give us advice uh, and um patty who lives in Dallas. We have so much in common. She used to live in Philadelphia when she had her fan club. And um, she and I just hit it off well. The three of us were all friends. And what, uh, there's not any more that I can say. They're just wonderful ladies. And their stories are all different. And, uh, and Pat uh, was... Uh, president of the George Harrison fan club and Patty was president of the um, uh, fan club um, oh I can't I can't remember his name 
I'm blanking uh, on your name. What? Victor Spinetti, I think. Victor, Victor Spinetti, yes. I'm sorry. Victor Spinetti fan club. And um, so, you know, we all have the same experiences and likes. And we were doing the same thing. I was doing the same thing in Chicago at 15 and 16 that they were doing in Philadelphia at 15 and 16, you know, but all in our different little ways. And I'm so happy that we were able to get together and meet each other at these Beatle Fests, at the Fest for Beatle fans. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, kindred spirits. Kindred spirits. That's right. Now I have one last question. What do the Beatles mean to you? Well, you know, I... The Beatles mean everything to me. I mean, they influenced so many parts of my life. Like I said, I went to school, went to the Art Institute, went into fashion designing and photography because of the Beatles. Um, and, you know, you have to ask yourself, why after 50 years are the Beatles still so important not only just to me but to other people and not only you know very deeply important to us too they, it's just that they were outstanding they were they weren't a band they were more than what they the music they made they were more than um all of that you know they were a cultural phenomenon mm -hmm. they were and um i don't know it's just a, a it's a creativity thing for me it's like they sparked my creativity and now and you have to, you have to say to you know after all these years i mean that's that staying power that's even though two of them have passed on it's still there. The fact that they are this popular with the new generation. That's right, with the new generation. all Like four generations almost. <laughs> and, you know, um, that's a magnificent tribute to the Beatles. And, you know, I mean, Ringo and Paul are still creating. <laughs> and they're still doing so many things. Um, and I've seen them in shows, both of them, but... Um, it's just um, unbelievable what they've done and how they've kept us all together and in that positive note. And so. And now it is my favorite part of the show where I get to turn it over to you. Where can we find your book? Um, I'm on Amazon as an ebook only, 16 and 64, The Beatles and the Baby Boomers. And um, I have my own website. It's www.16in64.com. So either one of those two places, you will be able to find the book, um, or you could write to me uh, personally. I have my email on the site. Um, and also at any of the conferences that we have. Um, I attended the one in... Um, the Ridge Festival a couple of years ago. Beatles at the Ridge. Beatles at the Ridge. And, um, I, you know, I haven't gone to the New York Beatle Fest yet. Well, neither have I. I only go to the Chicago I, one. Yeah. I mean, I, I always thought my story was sort of a Chicago story. 
so that's why I just went to Chicago. But people were telling me, you know, no, you should come to New York. You should try to New York sometime. So maybe I'll get there one day. Well, well, hopefully when this all clears up, we'll finally meet in person in Chicago. That would be wonderful. That would be great for us to do that. Because what the world needs is just a beetle fest right now. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah, we're overdue. Yeah. <laughs> And I and I know that I watched the entire um, virtual fest. It was wonderful that Mark uh, put together. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just not the same as it when you're there in person. It's still better than nothing, though. Yeah, well, of course it is, and it was really well done and put together really well. Mm-hmm. But I like that contact with other Beatle fans. You know, it's like an like a three day all inclusive at the Chicago the Hyatt. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the Hyatt Regency O'Hare. Yeah, and it's just it's uh-huh. like you're at one of those all all inclusives, but except for being on like a beach in the Dominican Republic, you're. I know. It's just panels about the Beatles and a marketplace and all that stuff. Oh yeah, it's fun, and they have different uh, artists and venues and you know different groups come in and every night they have a concert i should start getting paid by mark lapidus every single one of my interviews always ends up you know talking about the fest well i know there were other fests now i did attend one in um las vegas when he had one in Las. i actually attended two in las vegas of his fest that was years ago and that's where i met patty boyd and some of the other people um and then he used to have them in L.A., but I don't think, I don't think they're having them in L.A. any longer. Mm. But, uh, well, yeah. Anyway, come to Chicago. Come to Chicago and see us. I highly see the three, see the three Beetle Babes, huh? <laughs> I, I highly recommend it. But anyways, Marty, thank you so much for coming on the show today. It, it's well, I've I've had you. a lot of fun. Ethan, I really enjoyed it, and I hope that we can meet soon, maybe this coming summer in Chicago. Hope, That'd be great. Hopefully, COVID willing. Let's let's hope it goes away <laughs> for good. And in case you haven't but, seen them, the other two episodes are uploaded right now as well. So one, either go from this one to the other two, or if you're coming from the other two, thank you for watching them all. So, wow, you've received your daily dose of... Beetle fandom. Not daily, it's weekly, but you know what I mean. <laughs> Anyways, thank you so much to everyone else out there. Thank you for listening. You can go home now. End of part one. Intermission. End of intermission. Part two. All right, hello, 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 hello. Welcome back to Fans on the Run. I'm Ethan Alexanian. This is my show. I don't know why I keep saying that. You just heard the intro where it's like, this is Fans on the Run. You know, I after, what is it now? It's all like episode 40? I don't know what episode it is anymore. Y- you'd think I'd know how to introduce a show. Spoiler alert, I don't. But, you know, c'est la vie. We have... Another special guest for you today, part of our Beetle Babes three-parter. She was the founder and president of the official George Harrison fan club, which ran from about 64 to 72, and was the only person to have 
a sanctioned fan club by a Beatle. Pat Mancuso, welcome to the Beatles. Uh, welcome to Fans on the Run. <laughs> welcome to the Beatles. Oh, thank you. <laughs> See, that just kind of sets the tone for the show. Well, I want to ask you, now, I want to jump right back to the beginning. How did you first discover the Beatles? Um, well, I remember seeing them on the Jack Parr show in December. I don't remember the date, 1963. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, we had heard that they were going to be on there and that it was supposedly a big deal. So my friend and I, we got on our telephones and we watched it together. And, um, we just thought it was funny, really. Yeah. Uh, girls screaming. We thought, oh, that's never going to make it over here. Yeah. And these guys and, with these, like, rags on their heads. Right. Like, wow. These guys. And I knew nothing more about them until the 11th of January, 1964. I used to go down to a, a TV show in Philadelphia called American Bandstand. <laughs> And, Wait, was this uh, uh, Dick Clark's American Bandstand? Clark's American Bandstand, yes, that's right. And uh, I'm only like uh, half that, or I mean, like 45 minutes from Philadelphia. So anyway, one day, that particular day, was the last time <clears throat> Dick Clark uh, was doing a show in Philadelphia. He was moving the show to Los Angeles. So we'd have better, you know, contact with guest stars and whatnot. But it was primarily a, a dance show. Anyway, um, I was sitting on the bleachers, and I was talking to this friend of mine down there. Her name was Helen. And um, she started talking about the Beatles. And I said, oh, those people that were on Jack Parr. And she said, yeah, she says, they're really, really famous. And then she whips out a picture out of her purse of um, the Beatles, and it was from Newsweek magazine. Mm -hmm. And about the same time, Dick Clark started to play I Want to Hold Your Hand. And that was the first time that I had heard that. I don't even remember what they sang on the Jack Carr show, but the first one Dick Clark played was I Want to Hold Your Hand. And... Uh, that was that, the number one song in the country. Not at that moment it wasn't. But it, it soon wasn't. would be. <laughs> anyway, that's something about that song just kind of hit me. And I thought, this is really cool. And I was really sad that day because it was the last day of taping of American Bandstand. And, um, you know, by the time that was actually shown, that particular show, um, it was shown... Um, probably in February, I think. By the time he actually was on the air with that particular taping, it, you know, the whole world had gone nuts, including me. Because the day after the 11th of January, the day that I was doing, or was down there for that taping, um, it just like all of a sudden I could hear these songs being played on the radio. And She Loves You was one of them. And um, it, it was just incredible. And I remember going out and buying um, the single, I Want to Hold Your Hand. And uh, then soon after, I bought She Loves You. And uh, probably a matter of weeks later, like several, like a couple of weeks, 
I bought Meet the Beatles, the album. Mm -hmm. And that was when I discovered who was going to be my favorite Beatle. Um, I used to go with a friend to this drugstore after school, and mm -hmm. the drugstore sold magazines, and they had a soda fountain. And we would sit there and look at our magazines and um, drink Cokes. And um, anyway, all of a sudden, Beetle magazines were everywhere. But we went down there after we got our um, Meet the Beatles albums, and we sat there. I can remember us doing it. We sat there figuring out who was going to be our favorite. Well, the girl that I was with, she decided she was going to pick Paul. Mm -hmm. But he was the cutest. So I didn't think he was the cutest. I thought George was the cutest. So I picked George. And thus was the start of a long that and was, fruitful endeavor. <clears throat> oh, I should also mention that I used to have fan clubs for some of the regular dancers on bandstand. Really? So, so that's kind of how I got into fan clubs, I guess. So, so you weren't really a novice to the whole concept of a fan club. No. In fact, when I was much younger, well, seems like much younger now, but anyway, I, I was a big fan of the Mickey Mouse Club, mm -hmm. and Annette Michella was my favorite. And I made up, I was like 10, I guess, and I made up this um, fan club. I decided I would make a fan club. I don't know where I heard the concept, but I had a fan club for Annette. And the only people who were members were my my neighbors. <laughs> because, you know, I didn't really know what I was doing. Yeah. Yes. Well, I want to ask, how, how did the uh, official George Harrison fan club evolve? Well, I like I said, I was having fan clubs for some of the regulars on bandstand. So um, I kind of knew how it worked. And one of the things that you did was make up fan club kits. So I decided I was going to have this fan club. I didn't ask anybody's permission at that point. I didn't know you had to. I thought you just had to be a fan. So mm -hmm. I <clears throat> I made up all these um, uh, things that were going to go in this kit, this fan club membership kit. And um, I talked a few people into joining it. And it wasn't you know, a big deal at all until, um, I guess it was around February or March. Um, I had sent in my address to this one magazine called Teen Screen Magazine. Teen mm -hmm. Screen and a lot of the other magazines at the time had a, a, a section in their magazine of fan club listings. So I sent my fan club listing into Teen Screen Magazine, and then I forgot all about it. Until one day I came home from school, and there was a whole bunch of letters there for me. What is this? You know, and they all had 40 cents and three five-cent stamps included. And I thought, well, I don't know what this is all about. And then I saw that one of the letters that I got was from a friend, or not a friend, but it was going to be a friend, but a girl that lived in Phoenixville, Pennsylvania, which is, oh, 15 minutes, 10 minutes from my house. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so I got her phone number and called her on the phone, and I said, I'm just curious, how did you know about my fan club? 
And she said, it was in Jane's Green Magazine. Well, surprise, I hadn't gotten that issue yet. So, <laughs> uh, as the days and months went on, more and more letters came. And before I knew it, I had over a thousand members. Just I, like that. I was 16 years old. I was still in school. <laughs> I got $5 a month allowance. <laughs> and here I was charging 40 cents and three five cent stamps. Not only that, they were, that was the lifetime membership, not even like monthly or yearly. <laughs> so, so, did you break even? Oh, the... God, no. <laughs> well, that, that's the beauty of the fan club, though. Yeah, but nobody really cared about that at the time. There were a zillion of these fan clubs popping up everywhere, and nobody really cared about how much you were going to make. You just assume that somehow or other, I mean, when you're a teenager or a little kid, you don't really think about that kind of stuff. You just think, oh, this is fun, you know, until all of a sudden you've got like a zillion letters, you know, and you have to send them all something. <laughs> so um, my parents, God bless my parents, may they rest in peace. They went, I was an only child, and they... Um, went overboard helping me first of all they increased my allowance to five dollars a week instead of five dollars a month <clears throat> my mother found a place that would do uh, some office mimeographing for me my father was in the army at the time and he was uh the army base that was near our house was in valley forge and um he knew that there was a a dark room there, which is what you use then to, uh, you know, uh, develop pictures. Yeah. So I took some of the best magazine pictures I could find. Dad found a, a private in the Army who was going to help us, and Dad went and bought all the supplies. And he, he and I went over to Valley Forge after he was done work one day, and we printed pictures. <laughs> oh, no, or not millions, but probably over a thousand pictures we, we printed up and uh, these were going to be sent to the fan club members as part of the membership kit and uh you know it was crazy and i for the next couple of months our house was like a business um the dining room table became fan club central and we had all these different components from the um the membership kits all sitting on the table we had all these envelopes and and we started getting phone calls from or from irate parents because i guess i wasn't fast enough at, at sending this stuff out and irate parents would call up oh my son or my daughter sent in her whole allowance and we got nothing in return anyway my father handled that and um you know talked to the these irate parents on the phone and told them what was going on and that they would be receiving something and um and they did and uh, like after several months of this i had like over a thousand members no and, way uh, yes <laughs> and imagine keep imagining i'm 16 years old i'm still in school mm -hmm. and i'm running a business with like a thousand members yeah, you're, you're not just a student anymore. You're an entrepreneur. 
Yeah, I didn't even know that word yeah. <laughs> at that time. <laughs> well, that's in what fact, the school is for. That, huh? That's what the school is for. You learn the school yeah. for the big words like entrepreneur, and then you go and be an entrepreneur. Right. I don't even remember entrepreneur. Or hearing I, that word or anything. <laughs> I, I just completely dismantled my whole argument by saying the word wrong. But yeah, entrepreneur? Entrepreneur. I said entrepreneur like five times. Oh, oh sorry. I didn't think you did it. <laughs> oh, <laughs> my God. It was fine if you hadn't mentioned it, but anyway. Remember, kids, stay in school. Yeah, definitely stay in school. Yeah, or <laughs> else learned... you'll end up like me. What the fuck? Why aren't, did you quit school? No, it's just I'm stupid. Oh, all right. Uh, well, um, at the time, I wasn't taking college uh, pre preparatory courses either. I wanted to be a secretary. So this was like the perfect thing for me, you know? And I learned so much that I learned more than what the kids in my class were learning about being a secretary. Um, I learned how to use a an adding machine. I learned how to type. All this stuff that an organization skills, filing skills, I learned all of this before I was even taught it in school because, you know, I had to learn it. I didn't have a choice. <laughs> so how, how did your, uh, you know, growing George Harrison fan club become the official George Harrison fan club? Well, I guess it was somewhere around Christmas time, maybe in 1964 when I heard the address of George Harrison's parents on the radio and uh, I thought oh I'm gonna write to them I'm gonna send them a Christmas card <clears throat> so I did and a Christmas card came back from them really? and I was so oh, surprised you know I, I made up all these things in my head like oh it looks like George might have addressed the envelope and stuff, stupid stuff like that, which I'm sure didn't happen. But anyway, um, I started to write to George's mother. And what a lovely person. Actually, both her parents, both of his parents were delightful people. <laughs> and um, she, I told her I had this fan club. And she gave me the address of her daughter, Louise, who was living in Illinois. And uh, so I wrote a letter to her. And I said, I'm going to make you an honorary member of my fan club. So I sent her one of these infamous kits that I made up. And she, in turn, sent me the fact sheet back and corrected all the mistakes I had on it. You know, because I had the information I had was just out of magazines. Mm -hmm. So um, anyway, I, I was then involved with the Harrison family. So one time back in, I guess it was in 66, I decided I was going to, um, um, I lost my train of thought, oh, I was going to make my fan club official. Mm -hmm. So I, <clears throat> I guess in September of 66, I had graduated from high school and I was starting a job. And in my job, the, the, when I went and sat, you know, at my desk for the first time, I noticed there was a book there, an old book that had all kinds of office procedures listed in it. 
one of the things was charters. So I thought, hey, this is cool. I'll just re you know change the wording of this thing, and I'll send it to Mrs. Harrison, and she can get George to sign it when he comes to visit. And that's exactly how I became official. And so, your your charter got signed by George Harrison. <clears throat> Correct, but interestingly, he only signed George, not Harrison. So I guess you could say it wasn't totally official. And I'm not even sure. Somebody told me that they looked at it and they thought that his mother might have signed that. So I'm really not sure, being that she's dead and I can't ask her. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> but anyway, then just to make sure that it was official, official, I in 1968, when I went to England to meet George for the first time, I had made up an, a second charter, a revised one, and I had him sign it right in front of me. I have a picture of him signing it. <laughs> he, we discussed it first, and he made sure that I really wanted to be, you know, really wanted to do this all by myself, that I didn't want to be connected to the official Beatles fan club. And I said, no, I, I wouldn't, you know, I, I want to do it myself. And I said, why are you asking me? He says, because I don't want you to sue me one of these days. And I'm thinking to myself, why would I want to sue him? Well, it turned out that when I got home from that trip to England, a couple weeks later, I had a letter in the mail from um, Tony Barrow. Okay. Who was their press, the Beatles press for or something at the time yeah and he, i don't know i'm sorry i'm sorry that's another another subject um i got a letter from nathan weiss the, the beatles lawyer who was in new york city and uh he said that he understood that i was operating an illegal fan club and i was selling pictures and i didn't have permission blah 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 I showed this to my father. My father takes one look at it and says, well, that man doesn't know what he's talking about. Let's send him a letter. So my dad was really good at writing letters, like, you know, complaint letters and stuff. Yeah. So he wrote this official letter. You know, I added a couple things to it. And we sent a copy of the charter to Mr. Weiss. And we never heard from him again. So Beatles, the Beatles fan club knew that there was nothing they could do to stop me. And so I, I made a point of selling only pictures that I had either taken myself or um, pictures that his family had given to me, nothing else. So, and I had plenty of them, especially after that 68 trip. <laughs> so, um, Anyway, that's how I became official. But What did George think of your fan club? What? What did George think of your fan club? I, I don't know. He never said what he thought of it <laughs> until until the very end of it, which is a whole other story. <laughs> you want to hear that other story? <laughs> uh, I Now, tickle me intrigued. I do want to hear the end of this story. <clears throat> okay. All right. My, I went to England in 68. I went to England in 69. I went to England in 71. I did not see George in 71 because, unfortunately, my friend and I had planned this trip before they announced the Bangladesh concert. 
And guess what? We were in England when George was in New York City. Oh, man. I know. Plus, we missed the concert. Can you believe it? We were so upset. But anyway, we had already bought our airplane tickets, and they weren't refundable. So, you know, (laughs) what are we going to do? It's not like we had gobs of money to throw around. So, anyway, um, I guess it was the beginning of 1972, I got um, a letter in the mail from the official Beatles fan club in New York saying that they were going to disband all of the fan clubs, even the small independent ones, all the ones that were connected, because I I ended ended up having to um, be connected in 1969. So I was a, a chapter under the official Beatles fan club only for George, and I was the only one who put official at the beginning of the, the title, you know? Mm-hmm. I was the only one who could. So um, I was a member of that, and this person that was in charge of it at the time said that all the fan clubs were ending, and that it was because of one of the fan club's newsletters. Once she called it one of our finest chapters, I knew right away that it was me because everybody always told me that mine was the best, you know? Mm-hmm. So, I, I didn't know, you know, what the thing. So, my last newsletter that I had sent out in December of 71, <clears throat> that had um, a bunch of things in it, articles. Now, I always checked, always checked with Mrs. Harrison before I put anything in my newsletters because I wanted it to be true. Mm-hmm. By then she was dead. She died in 1970. And I, somebody had sent me um, a newspaper article that was an interview with Patty Harrison. And uh, it was at a cocktail party or something. This person, this press person from, I think it was the London um, Daily, Daily Mail, I think it was. Yeah. And um, Daily Mail printed this uh, interview with Patty. And in the interview, Patty said that she was, or that they they were trying to get pregnant. And if the, if they didn't get pregnant soon, they were gonna, they were thinking about adopting a child from India. Mm-hmm. So I thought, well, that sounds reasonable, considering that, you know, they haven't had any kids yet. And also because, you know, they loved all things Indian. So um, I printed it in my newsletter. That's the only thing that was in that newsletter that I could think that he would have taken opposition to. And I heard that being a private person, he was furious at Patty for even doing the interview in the first place. And then he was mad again, I guess, when he saw it in the newspaper. And then he got a copy of my newsletter. Now, I never sent him my newsletters. I I sent them to his sister because his sister was an official member, right? Mm-hmm. An honor, I mean, an honorary member. And uh, she was getting divorced from her husband. And I had heard that she was staying with George at Friar Park. Well, I was wrong. She was actually, um, I think, in New York at that time. And then later she moved to Florida. But... Um, the newsletter uh, which I had sent her in care of his address in England ended up in his hands instead of hers. 
And apparently he saw that article again. <laughs> and probably now he was mad at me, you know, as well as Patty. <laughs> and also, <clears throat> I found out that somebody, one of the Apple scruffs had apparently written a book, which I hadn't gotten at that point. And she said in it that uh, one of George's fan clubs in the United States was running tours to his mother's grave. Well, <laughs> I, I had been to his mother's grave, but it, you know, I was certainly not leaving tours of it. What happened with that deal is that after George's mother died, our fan club saved up a bunch of money to donate to the hospital where she had treatments. Mm-hmm. And uh, his father was all in, in it, you know. He was, in fact, he's the one that suggested that hospital. Flatterbridge Hospital, and um, he was going to actually take us to her grave, but then Bangladesh came up. He didn't tell me that that's the reason, but he told me that he had to go to the United States on business, (laughs) and he was not going to be able to be there to take me, (laughs) so he gave me explicit directions of how to get there. I have never shared them with one soul. And the day I went there, all I had with me was my friend Pat Simmons from Ohio. And we were sponsoring a little girl from Liverpool uh, through the Save the Children's Fund. And we had her, her and her little sister and her mother. They were with us because, you know, we didn't know the area. They were taking us around and stuff. Mm-hmm. So they were with us. They were the only people there. It hardly was a tour, and, you know, I only went there once in my entire life, and this woman is accusing me of uh, doing tours, and apparently she told it to George, and George got PO'd about that, too, which I don't blame him, but he didn't, you know, the thing that bothered me the most out of all of this is that if he was told things, and they, you know, were questionable, or that you know, they made him mad, and my name was connected to him. Why didn't he just ask me? But he didn't. He believed these other people. And so pretty much when all this went down, he was probably really, really angry with me. And, of course, then I became very, very angry with him. I wrote him letters. I sent him telegrams. I did everything I could to get him to respond to tell me why he did this to me. Why am I the one that's being blamed for all the fan clubs ending, you know? And I never found out. I carried, well, I did eventually, but I carried this with me for close to 30 years before I finally found out what happened. And I really only found out after I, um, after I printed my first book, Do You Want to Know a Secret? And uh, the second book is going to be coming out probably within the next six months at least. It's called The Promise Not to Tell. And in there, I tell people what happened after I did the first book. I'm not going to go into detail with you right now because I do want people to buy that book when it comes out. (laughs) Likewise, I want people to buy that book. Yes, so you understand why I'm not telling you how it all really ended. Mm Mm-hmm. Because you got to go get the book. Huh? You got to go get the book. 
Yes, but it isn't out yet. No, I know. I'm just saying, theoretically, if you want yes, to hear the conclusion to this story. If you want to know the true answer, either you're like a very close friend or you buy my book, which will be out within six months. So do you want it, or do you promise not to tell the sequel to Do You Want to Know a Secret? Now I want to ask you kind of some general questions. Yes. What is your favorite Beatles album? My Beatles, my my favorite what? Beatles album. Beatles album. That's a good question because I don't have an answer. I never had a favorite one. I I love them all. I guess if you had to say a time period, I would say you know. Anything that was in the, uh, like, up to 66, 67, those were my favorites. Everything changed with um, Sgt. Pepper. And I liked the music before Sgt. Pepper better than the music after Sgt. Pepper. Okay. So that's about as good as I can narrow it down. <laughs> uh, that's still pretty good. So you're, you're not a terribly big fan of the psychedelic later stuff then? Not, not really. I mean, some of it's okay. I mean, I do like the other albums. I mean, the White Album was great. I like that better than Sgt. Pepper. But, um, yeah, I mean, I've, typically, I mean, nowadays, I can't, I, I just don't like that really loud metal-y sound. Or, and a lot of that uh, psychedelic stuff started to, I mean, it was probably the preliminary to metal music or heavy metal music or whatever yeah you know because music started to get really loud <laughs> and i really like the the other stuff i like music from the 50s too you know and and the 60s like my favorite song of all time is not a beatles song what is your favorite song of all time be my baby by the ronettes oh that's a great one <laughs> i love that song. i love the ronettes yes wonderful. It's that and Baby I Love You. I can just listen to on repeat for hours. Yeah. I mean, I I actually saw the Ronettes in person while I was down at American Bandstand when they were guests one day. Really? What was that like? That was really cool because I mean, everybody there just loved that song. I mean, it, it just, it wasn't a song that came out of Philly, but it sounded like a Philly song. You know, <laughs> Philly, Philadelphia. Yeah. Oh, well, it's that that whole Phil Spector sound is just marvelous. Yeah. yeah. Even despite the fact that he's, you know, a really bad person. Yeah. Despite the <laughs> fact that he shot that woman in the head. Yeah, and he's now in jail, prison. Yeah. Probably for the rest of his life. <laughs> yeah, but he still put out that a Christmas gift to you album, so. Yeah. All's well that ends well, I guess. Right. <laughs> um, so, what is your favorite Beatles song? Do you want to know a secret? <laughs> well, seeing as you've gotten two of the titles from books from that, how did I not see that coming? I don't know. <laughs> Again, but you a know, slow. I named it, Do You Want to Know a Secret? After I told you that story, <laughs> there is a secret, apparently, because George did not want to tell me why he did that, right? <laughs> so that was a perfect title for a song. And besides that, it already was my favorite Beatles song, even before I wrote the book. Now, 
do you have a least favorite Beatles song? Yes. What is your least favorite Beatles song? I totally dislike um, Everybody's Got Something to Hide But Me and My Monkey. Really? I just don't like that song. What, what I, about it do you not like? <clears throat> I don't know. It just doesn't hit me right, I can tell you that. I just don't care for it. I don't, I don't know what it is. I, I just don't. It doesn't sound like the other Beatles songs. It's just, I don't know. I just don't like it. It is kind of chaotic. Yeah. And I don't like things chaotic. I like things organized. Maybe that's a good reason. Well, <laughs> well now I want to ask you kind of a broader question. What do the Beatles mean to you? Oh, everything. They changed my life. My, I can't imagine what direction my life would have taken had they not come into it at that time, you know? Mm-hmm. I, and the fan club and all that stuff, it just, everything in my life changed. I went from being a, a 10th grade, or I guess 11th grade student in high school to, you know, what uh, being a fan club president, starting my own business. I didn't even think of it as starting my own business. I, I only discovered that when I got older, you know? <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know. It just changed my life. I don't know what direction I would have gone in. I mean, my parents wanted me to go to college. I didn't want to go to college. I wanted to earn money right away so I could support my fan club. <laughs> so I didn't go to college. I ended up working at a college, but I did... I, I took a couple of free courses, but I think I have like 13 college credits and that's about it. (laughs) I just never had any desire to get a college degree. Yeah. Well, that's fair. Yeah. But, and I want to ask you, why do you think the Beatles still resonate with the, the fans of today? That's a good question. I, I honestly don't know other than the fact that to the kids today obviously Beatle music is unique because the stuff they listen to now in my opinion is garbage but <laughs> to each they, their own yeah right and uh, I, they just I don't know um, they, they were just too good for their time I guess and, it, and because of that it just you know resonated through the years I mean, everybody knows who the Beatles are, pretty much. When I worked at a college, I had students that would uh, be, like, helpers to me. They, they got paid, like, minimum wage, and and, um, and they helped me out, you know, with some of my work. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and every single one of them, I made sure before they left my office that they knew and could tell me so George Harrison, John Lennon, Paul McCartney, and Ringo Starr, who they were and what their names are. I wouldn't let them, I, I told them, you'll know this stuff or I'm not going to let you graduate. <laughs> like I had any, you know, any handling. It's mandatory. It, yes. It's needed for like a proper education. True. Now, now I want to kind of do something fun. Uh, I, I did this with the others, um, or other, I've only recorded one of uh, one of the others so far. 
Right, Describe right. your fellow beetle babes in only one word. Oh, oh you should have asked me that one before so I would have been able to think of it. Oh. <laughs> um, let's see. Patty. Um, uh, okay, I'll use your word entrepreneurial. Entrepreneurial. That, okay, yeah, that describes Patty. What about Marty? I don't know as well as I know Patty. Okay. Um, let me see. She was ahead of her time. If that, that's not one word. I'll, I'll, I'll let it slide. It counts. It, I say that because she figured out how to meet the Beatles when she was only, you know, like 16. I mean... I figure that out at a young age. It's not easy to figure that out. <laughs> and and now it's it's my favorite part of the show where I get to turn it over to you. Where can people find your book and your upcoming book? What do you want to know about it? Uh, where can they find it? Oh, where can they find it? Okay. Well, I can't say where you can find my second book since it's not out yet. But I can tell you that you can get Do You Want to Know a Secret? from going to Amazon. They have it. There you go. Go go get her book. It's you, you will not be disappointed. I hope they aren't and I hope they'll go out and buy my second one when it comes out. Well, they're now that they've listened to this episode, they're legally required. I I will make sure of it that they buy the second book. Okay. Yeah. How you're going to do that, I'm not sure, but I I have my ways. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, like to end things on a weird, ominous note. Anyways, Pat, it is it has been fantastic talking to you today. Thank you. It's been fun. To everyone else out there, thank you for listening. You can go home now. End of part two. Intermission. <laughs> end of intermission. Part three. All right, hello, 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 hello. Welcome back to Fans on the Run. Out of uh, uh, f. Okay, so now from now on, I'm I'm running out of things to introduce my show with. I have the same three jokes that I've been saying since April. I'm now taking submissions for new jokes at fans on the run podcast at gmail.com because I can't come up with any on my own because I am devoid of creativity right now. Don't ask why, I won't answer. Um, wow, that was quite that was quite a tangent to start on. It, it can only go downhill from here. But it won't. It'll go uphill so much. <laughs> what the fuck am I talking about? <laughs> Anyways, we have a fantastic guest for you today. Even though it says who my guest is in the title, mystery guest, how are you today? I'm doing fine, even though I'm a mystery guest. It's okay. Yeah, pretending like this is a game of, like, what's my line? Yeah, yeah. Except there's no blindfolds and no Frank Sinatra guest appearance. No, no. That would be shocking at this point. (laughs) Oh, wow. It appears we are not only joined by the mystery guest, but a feline (laughs) companion. Yeah, of said yeah. mystery guest. 
Yeah, that's that's uh, Tiger Lily. <laughs> she's she's very vocal today. So oh, I I have a loud golden retriever, so I don't necessarily mind. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's like that's- oh, imagine if my animal that was that quiet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, let me let me try and. Go, get through this introduction she was the president of the victor spinetti fan club and she is now a guest on fans on the run among or along with her beetle big i'm gonna edit that whole bit out i just messed that up from the beginning okay she is the author of diary of a beetle maniac a fab insider's look at the beatles era she was the president of the victor spinetti fan club and now she's a guest along with her Beetle Babe compatriots on Fans on the Run. Patricia Gallo Stenman, welcome to the show. Thank you for inviting me today, Ethan. I really appreciate it. Oh, well, well, Patty, thank you for coming on the show. <laughs> thank you. Yeah. Was the introduction sufficient? Oh, yes. Yes, it was. That kind of sums me up in a nutshell. Beetle fan and Victor Spinetti president co-president actually. co-president yeah <laughs> of the what what is it the pen like the victor philadelphia Sp- victor spinetti fan club uh official victor spinetti fan club chapter one philadelphia that's what it was <laughs> i was close i knew it was yeah. something with philadelphia yeah yeah we were, we, well he actually had other fan clubs i he had one in new york and uh, somewhere else in the States, and he did have one in London and someplace else in, in the England. So were you guys we were, in cahoots with the other fan clubs? Yes, we were. We, we used to exchange information so we could put some of their information in our newsletter, and they could put some of our information that we got in their newsletters. So it worked out really well. Symbiotic relationship. Yes. Yes, it was. It was. It was fun. Well, it lasted. <laughs> so, I want to ask, first of all, how have, how have you been holding up in this uh, hell of a year we've been living in? Well, uh, we're holding up um, down here near Dallas, Texas. And, um, you know, because of uh, I'm first-generation fan, which means that I'm on the sunny side, you know, of 70. So, we're, we're I've been kind of, you know, keeping close to home and, and uh, just hoping that next year, things are better with with some kind of vaccine that which would be great all all we can do is hope that's it it's like the the worst thing we can do is let our spirits down true that is true well actually the worst thing we can do is run around without masks coughing on other people Uh, right right and not paying attention to social distancing as that's true that is very true That was a loud ding. Yeah, I don't know what that was. <laughs> okay, yeah. Behind the scenes, folks. Mm-hmm. And, but anyways, let's jump right back to the beginning. How did you first discover the Beatles? That's oh. how you know it's a, a deep question when I lower my voice. It's a it's a question that goes by but goes back several several decades because um, I I was a uh, I was a Beatle fan from the time I was 14 in 63 and 64. And I first saw them on the Jack Parr show 
Funny uh, enough, you're the second person I've talked to today who has mentioned the Jack Parr show. Really? Well, that's interesting because they were they had a little segment on the yeah. Jack Parr show in black and white. They were and, it was if uh, I'm going off my memory here, it was like, hey, look what's going on over in England. This Beatlemania. Yeah. And they played yeah. this, you know, promotional video right. of them doing I think it was like She Loves You. Yeah, it was I don't remember the song, but I remember it was black and white and I saw it on Jack Parr probably November, December of 63. Then I actually saw a small uh, article about them in our Sunday newspaper magazine in at the end of December of 63. <laughs> so that's really the first time I discovered the Beatles. And then, of course, in February 64 came a lot of publicity on the radio well, that's station. That's when all hell broke loose. Yeah, right. In February, late January, February. And then, of course, came the Ed Sullivan show on the 9th of February. And then that's when it really set in, you know, for me and for a lot had, of other fans. You had, like, the Meet the Beatles album come out in January, all that stuff. Yep, that's right. And that's, that's actually the first album that I ever bought was Meet the Beatles. And it was for February 7th. It was my girlfriend Kathy's birthday. And I went into the local A&P supermarket <laughs> where they had sort of kind of a round thing that sold records, some kind of display. And on that display was Meet the Beatles. And I had heard about them on the radio and, of course, seen them where I, I told you on TV. And I bought my girlfriend Kathy Meet the Beatles for her birthday on February 7th, where she turned 15. And then I bought myself about a week later the vj album uh, introducing uh, the beatles uh, introducing the beatles which had a horrible cover yeah. but it still was yeah you know, i still have I'm that sitting on that stupid chair yes yes it was awful but anyway yeah that was the first album i bought but the first album i really bought for my girlfriend's my girlfriend kathy was introducing the beatles so kind of fun <laughs> so what was that like being, you know, you, a new teenager at the start of this, you know, you were only 14. Right. Um, at the start of this phenomenon. Well, you know, the funny thing about it is um, I was the age where I was kind of ripe for a chase to do something. I, You know, we were, we were coming out of a really rotten period where Kennedy had just been assassinated the the November before mm -hmm. and the whole country was kind of in a real sad funk and uh, you know here we were at 14 or 15 and we were ready for something exciting to happen and the, the Beatles just kind of happened at that time it was the perfect timing for us and uh, we ran with it you know we especially the girls I, I can't talk about the boy beetle maniacs because i didn't know any i went to an all-girls school so uh but we were right for the chase right then so right from the beginning right from the beginning right from that time that point in time so how how did you feel the first time you heard either meet the beatles or introducing the beatles or well, one of those two i thought the music was kind of different 
and interesting because we you know i lived in philly and there was a lot of up until this time it was like doo-wop stuff and you know um not not really you know much rock and roll i mean till 63 he kind of had the beach boys but not really yeah yeah, there's they were starting but uh, on the east coast it was a lot of uh and it was groups like uh, oh my gosh i'm just trying to think you know Oh, guys like you know Bobby Rydell and 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 Paul Anka and Frankie stuff. Valley. And, yeah, Frankie Valley, and you know then you hear this this group that that's from England that sounds like nobody else, and it was it was great sounds, and the, the, the even the very early stuff it was there were all different kinds of songs. It wasn't <laughs> just one style all the time, so it was pretty interesting for us and. You know, we we like the music a lot, but you've got to understand that the Beatlemaniacs from 63, 64, 65, it was a culture. The Beatlemania was really a culture. It had to do with what they were like. It had to do with collecting, not memorabilia. We didn't call it, we didn't even know the name memorabilia. We just call it Beatle stuff, you know. Uh Our parents called it Beatle junk. And uh, really, and so my parents would call it a beetle investment now with the kind of money it's worth now yeah it's true absolutely but back then Ethan, why do you need these bobbleheads from 1964 because mom they're part of history mom the history is right you know it was part of it but but, but to us it was just but go to the local woolworths and buy some of this stuff that was like 298 or something and you know our parents would say oh that's what you're spending your allowance on huh and you know it was junk and uh what kind of what kind of beetle junk did you buy back in the day well um geez i guess i could tell you that i started with beetle buttons okay Mm -hmm. that was the first thing we saw in february were buttons that said i love paul i love george i love john i love ringo and they were big and uh then came beetle wigs which we didn't buy, but some kids did it for a joke and boys and stuff. It was funny. Uh, that was the early, early stuff. Of course, the albums, you know, were out. That was Beatle. That was serious Beatles stuff. Then came around a month or two later came things like um, the Remco little four <laughs> dolls, which I own. I got all four of them. And the I little think they, ones with the the real hair. Yeah, yeah. And they. Sure. I have them right back here. And they uh, haunt my yeah. nightmares. Yeah, yes, I, I I got those. And also a lot of um, magazines came with oversized posters, color posters that you could take out of the magazines. So we put all that stuff on the wall. One of the other early things that I bought were Beetle bubblegum cards. And uh, they were published by a company called Tops that does all the football and baseball cards. And um, you would buy a piece of bubble gum with one of these cards, I don't know, five cents. And then we collected them. I, I still have 109 of them. 109 so, Beetle bubble gum cards. Yeah. So that's a lot of cavities at the dentist. You see, that's, that's right. A lot. But um, see, I got I, all the cavities, but I didn't even get the Beetle bubble gum cards. Bubble gum cards. I now I feel like I got chipped. You did. The, the bubble gum that came with it, the flat bubble gum, it was hard to chew. But the funny the funny thing about that story is that I actually um, had brought them to school uh, pretty close to March, I guess, time after they came out in February. 
And uh, in eighth grade, eighth period English class, the sister, we went to Catholic school, the nun saw me passing these cards around to my girlfriend and she confiscated all of them. <gasps> all oh, of them. No. And she, I was so afraid she was going to throw them out in her trash can. I was, this was eighth period, so it was the end of the day. And after school, she got me up there and she said, I want you to promise that I never see these cards again in class. And she gave them to me back. So because of Sister St. Bernadette, who also called Sister St. Bernard, <laughs> but she gave me my cards back and I still have them to this day, every one of them. So, yeah. <laughs> Amen. Amen. For a nice sister. Yes. So, so yeah. How did you get involved with the world of fan clubs and, you know, the general fan communities? Oh, uh, well, I never actually joined a Beatle fan club. Uh, I didn't. But uh, the story is that with Victor Spinetti fan club, it wasn't that it was going to start as a fan club. Uh, Victor... Um, was a very, very nice guy who actually uh, came to Philadelphia in uh, September 64 to appear in a play from England called Oh, What a Lovely War. It was a satire about World War One, which mm -hmm. he was uh, one of the major players in the in this theater presentation. And it was playing in Philly prior to Broadway. Mm -hmm. So I found out in a newspaper that Victor Spinetti was coming to Philly, he had already appeared in A Hard Day's Night. So my antenna went up <laughs> as a Beatlemaniac. I found out what hotel he was going to be in, and I wrote a letter to him at the Bellevue Stratford Hotel, which was a chic hotel in Philly. Mm -hmm. And um, he actually wrote back to me and he said, I just got in, we're going in, um, you know, rehearsals, and I'd love to see you, you know, stop by uh, the box office or stop by and say hello. Because Victor really loved Beatle fans, and mm -hmm. he knew that Beatle fans would become his fans. So there was a bunch of us that would appear outside the theater uh, in September 64 uh, when they were rehearsing. And we'd go right after school because our school was in the center of town, right near the theater. Mm -hmm. And me and my Beatle buddies, two of them, the three of us would go up there and say hello to Victor. And Victor had this thing about him. He would get all the girls who would come to visit from around waiting to hear tales of the Beatles. He would sit them down in the lobby or he would sit them down even in, in outside. And he would tell us Beatle stories about him being on set with them and, and a hard day's night and how, you know, what happened. And, and it was lovely. So anyway, my girlfriends, my two girlfriends and I decided uh, when he was leaving Philly at, to go to New York uh, on Broadway, we would start a fan club for him. And that's how the Victor Spinetti fan club came about. Um, and we had about 50 or 70 members. It wasn't a big club and mostly girls from our high school and uh you know we gave out newsletters and things of that sort and it really went through freshman year until senior year in high school mm -hmm. so it was pretty interesting so so what was what was the evolution of the victor spinetti fan club 
And by evolution, you mean like... Yeah. Just, how, how, yeah. Describe the lifespan. Well, yeah, when it started, we were just really excited to, to, to you know, be part of this whole beetle world, and we didn't know what was going to happen. But uh, Victor was really the, 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 the push to it because, you know, he kept us informed. He said right after he was in oh what a lovely war and it went to New York and we went to visit him in New York it was really nice but he went he would he got into the next movie he was asked to appear in the next movie which was called Beatles Two mm-hmm. which happened to be you know help and then he sent us a lot of information and stuff uh, from the set of, of uh, in in the Bahamas and also in, in the Alps. And we, we put that in the fan club letters and, and people were more interested because, wow, this is exciting. Then he starts sending us gifts from the set, you know, yes. when he was on location. And that really was exciting. The first, first thing he sent us was uh, the sweater he wore in A Hard Day's Night. Sent you the, the Hard Day's Night sweater? Yeah, we have that. And um, do you still have it? Actually, it was with my other co-president, so I'm not sure of the status of it. At 50 years later, but we had it. You have to find out. You have to find out. Yeah, that is that's an icon in in the Beatles world. I know, and it. He sent us that first, and actually, that wasn't. um, That was his own sweater. They asked him when he was uh, appearing in A Hard Day's Is that night, like the black one with the, the striped sleeves? It, it's a gray, fuzzy one with a, a V-neck, and it has something around the sleeves, something, and a lighter gray. And it's like an alpaca, or it's a very funny, fuzzy material, <laughs> and a very warm sweater. Uh, one of uh, our co-president wore it when we were trying to drum up business for the club when uh, Help opened. She wore it in 90 degree heat oh, <laughs> and, oh. and gave out little uh, cards, uh, business cards with a piece of fuzz staple to it. So uh, trying to get more members. And that, that was the first thing he, he gave us. And then after uh, he gave us the auto, his autographs on a plane menu from uh, when they were flying from England to New York. Uh, please, tell, please tell about the and, plane menu. And then... Uh, Okay, well, the plane menu is interesting because um, we didn't expect it. I mean, we had no idea he was going to send us something. And all of a sudden, I think, let me see if I can find a date. To those um, wishing right now that this was a video podcast, uh, I will I will recite um, an ancient Chinese proverb. Nana nana boo boo. <laughs> yeah, well... That what happened with the, this is that um, I guess it was in August of '65. Uh, he actually um, sent us, or maybe it was a little earlier than August. He s- sent to my home a menu, a beautiful menu from the uh, BOAC Airlines that took them from England to New York. And uh, on the back of this menu uh, are all four autographs. Paul is in pencil and John and Ringo and George is in ink. And um, we were surprised. I mean, we didn't expect that he wrote inside for all at Philly 
love Victor Spinetti at present working on Beatles 2. See back page for autographs of the four lads. So we, we got that from Victor, which was a complete surprise. And, and that maybe that was more like in March of 65. Uh, yeah, 60, 65, I guess it was. So what happened after that was, um, which was really funny, was my birthday came up. And uh, my mother, who knew a Victor, you know, from all the things that were going on, had written him a nice little note before my birthday and said, Patty's going to have her birthday soon. Um, can you send something special for, for her? So um, Victor was filming in the Alps in Austria, and we got this. I got this is for me, and it was to my, my, uh, my mother, Mrs. Gallo, and our address in Philly. And uh, the postcard was from the Alps. And on the other side, it says to Patty from Paul McCartney, happy birthday, love. And that was exciting as anything for me. It was my own personal thing. But to, for even better is Victor said that it, when they were filming help uh, at Twicking in the studio in London at Twickingham Studio, that he got the studio hairdresser to get a lock of Paul McCartney's hair. Oh so wow! I, I actually have Paul's DNA. You could we clone your own Paul McCartney. Yes, we had we had this family joke for about uh, fifteen years now that you know I would clone him as my butler and move to Maui. That's what I'm gonna do. So there's 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 actually Paul's hair right here. It's kind of a nice chestnut brown color, and it's like a C shape. It's about two inches long, and I have it encased in plastic like a relic. So that that's what I have. So and then Victor would send us other little things. To some um, people that might be creepy, but to me that is the coolest thing ever. Yeah, I, you know, to me too, because I'm thinking, oh. If only I can clone it, you know. So, uh, but, Vic, you know, so our fan club was taking on a kind of a life of its own. We were getting all these fun things. And Victor, you know, would give us interviews and write things down. We would call him sometimes in England and he would, you know, tell us things. And uh, they were would go into the newsletter. So we were kind of on a roll, I guess, sophomore year and junior year. And then by senior year, you know, things kind of settled down a little bit. We were all worried about going to college. And, and even though we were still Beatlemaniacs, it wasn't as exciting anymore. Uh, of course, we were always in touch with Victor. So the fan club actually, you know, quieted down during senior year of high school. And then we kind of disbanded when we all went our own ways into college or business schools or wherever we went. So it, it kind of peaked i guess in sophomore junior year yeah but it technically hasn't been disbanded yet no there was nothing that it disbanded it That's so technically it's still <laughs> it still exists there There's just hasn't still, been a newsletter for 50 something years 50 years we haven't had a newsletter out but victor has always remained in my heart and you know i through the decades i was friends with him i went to england and visited him when i was in england and uh we i saw him the last time at the fest for beetle fans uh i guess it was 2000 and it might have been 2006 2007 <clears throat> when he was in las vegas uh, in the summer i made a point 
to go see him because I knew he was getting older and that might be the last time I see him, which it was. And we spent time together and had dinner together and it was really nice to see him. And I interviewed him for my book. He's in the, has a whole interview in the chapter in one of the, the later chapters in my book for that interview. Please, when he was and he remembered you. Well, we've been, we've been, we had been stayed in touch all these years. We never stopped staying in touch. Really? Oh yeah. I, I wrote him emails. I would call, he would write, write letters uh, or emails. And um, when I was trying to get a, a publisher for my book, cause I had my book written many years ago. Uh, he actually gave me the name of his, uh, not publisher, but his, uh, person his uh who helped him get published and um i contacted her in 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 london so no we never we never really fell out of of you know being in contact all those years and up until the time where he was when he went into hospice i kind of lost and then i was in touch with his sister so in wales so it, it was a nice Friendship. How do you think people should remember Victor Spinetti? Oh gosh, a very intelligent, kind, very smart man, and um, very giving and loving. He had he had told me a few times that why why was he so nice to all these Beatle fans who came around and haunted him? He said, definitely, I was nice to them because. When I was young and a teenager, I was a fan too of different actresses and actors. And I knew what it felt like to really want to meet these people. So he said, I kind of know this. And, and that's why I feel like I have a job to do with being nice to everybody and, and helping people get together and, and learn about things. So he was, you know, he was just a very, very, very kind, nice person, and uh, I miss him. You know, I I, I miss him. His little cards to me, and you know, when he would he appeared on stage, just about almost to the time he he went into the hospital. He, in fact, he was carted off the stage because he had uh, collapsed on stage, uh, really? and uh, with his and and they took him to the hospital and found out he had different problems. So he was, he was a trooper right till the very end. And he was in his early eighties, I think 83 or 84 when he died. Uh, I want to ask you kind of going back to the Beatles, how, how did uh, Beatlemania and the Beatles like influence your life as a teenager? <laughs> as a teenager? Well, actually I can say that, it influenced me such as that every day we lived the team we lived the Beatles I mean it wasn't just a once in a week or once in a month thing Beatlemania was really what we lived for I mean we would get up in the morning and we'd turn on the radio because that's where we got our news from we had no computers the radio and the the teenage the stations that played you know rock and roll and stuff that, that was our lifeline and they would have you know, in the morning, they would have information, for example, well, today, George Harrison got married, you know, in London. Then we would be off and running the whole day trying to, uh, well, we had a girlfriend who was a George Harrison fan who was in tears the whole day at school, next to, near a breakdown. So we would have to help her, and we would be upset with her, 
And, you know, we lived it every day in one way or the other. A new album was coming out. Oh, boy, you know, it's time to go to Jolly's Record Store and get that album. Or a new record was coming out on the radio. So we did live it. Or things that we could buy, you know, this Beatle junk that we, we collected. Or, or decorating our rooms. Um, several of us had Beatle stuff, you know, from the floor up into the ceiling. Uh, thank, you know... Uh, I think you mean so Beetle it, junk. It yeah, Beetle stuff, Beetle junk is what it was, believe me. But um, I used to hold Beetle birthday parties uh, for, well, especially for Paul and John every year uh, for a couple years in my mother's dining room. And I had a cute little cake, and I would put my little Remco figure on the cake, put a little hat on him. I, I just is crazy, but I have pictures. I took a lot of pictures, and I have pictures of this. And one year for Paul's birthday, I guess it was the first birthday party I threw for Paul. I actually said to my friends, "Let's call uh, Liverpool and see if we can speak to Paul." You know, and we had landlines then. <laughs> And I went to the overseas operator and, and tried to get through to uh, Paul. I had his address because it was in, you know, always in the magazines. And, and the, the British operator said in her wonderful accent, her Liverpool accent, well, he's not here, love. Why don't you try to call us fan club? Well, we all went crazy just to hear somebody with a British accent on the phone. And I was very lucky because if that phone call would have went through, my mother probably would have killed me because long distance was very expensive in those days. And I was didn't have any permission to call long distance to Liverpool. So the, the call was free, but we got to speak to a British, you know, overseas operator, which was thrilling, you know. <laughs> but so the Beatles consumed your life. Yeah, they consumed my life probably half a freshman year, sophomore year, junior year. And then, of course, senior year, we had I, we settled down a little bit because it was time to switch. It was time to think of other things, you know, the second part of senior year. That doesn't mean that we weren't fans. That just meant that it, it went from the frenzy to another stage as we got older, you know. <clears throat> See, when I ask you how they influenced your life, I thought you were going to say, oh, something fashion. But, like, you're throwing birthday parties for the Beatles. We threw birthday parties for the Beatles. We also, I mean, one of the big things we used to do is we used to write letters to the editor of the magazines and newspapers. A lot of the local newspapers used to pan them, whether it was their music or when they appeared in concert, or they just said nasty things. Well, we would write letters and almost threaten these guys at the on the they got thousands of letters in philadelphia against you know people that were you know, these guys were against the beatles in some way uh so that that kept us busy and of course you've got to realize that they were in concert then i saw the beatles in concert three times okay yeah, did you i saw the, there, yeah I, saw, I know there were three tours did you see them on each of the tours well i saw them on the first tour and i saw them on the last tour uh, I saw them in 64 uh, in September 2nd uh, at Philadelphia Convention Hall, the first time they came in uh, in 64. And that was an indoor concert, which you couldn't hear them and you couldn't see them because everybody was standing on chairs. But I was lucky enough to get a, uh, 
a ticket. I got two tickets. Me and my girlfriend went, and we were downstairs on folding chairs in, in this big convention center where they had hockey and everything. <laughs> so we had folding chairs downstairs. And the sad thing about that is that every all the girls were falling off the chairs because they were, you know, kind of wooden, rickety kind of folding chairs. So that 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 was when I saw them in uh, the first time. And the second time and the third time was the last tour. Uh, I saw them in Philly in 66, and it was August 16th in JFK. No, this was, yeah, JFK Stadium in Philadelphia. And uh, that was a strange time because it, that was the first group of outdoor stadiums that they appeared. <laughs> and the outdoor stadium, you could hear them because they had the loudspeakers on. And then you could see them like ants, you know, sort of all the way down somewhere. And then a week later, we took the train at all the 16 years old. We took the train up to Shea Stadium. Oh, so wow. We, yeah. But we didn't see the 65 Shea Stadium. <laughs> we saw the 66 Shea Stadium. It was August 23rd. And we went Day up to Shea Stadium. Day after my birthday. There, there you go. If you would have been around, you could have went to see the Beatles right after your birthday. Perfect. It was August 23rd. We went up there and we saw them and uh, we took the train up to, from Philly. Can you imagine 16 years old taking the train to Philly from Philly up to, to New York? And then we went to the stadium that evening. And uh, that, again, was an outdoors you know, concert. And we were able to, you know see them as little ants down there and here's them. I've got a question because yeah. I've been lucky enough now to talk to a few people who've actually seen the Beatles live but you also yeah. always hear about like oh the opening acts what oh. was the crowd's reaction to the opening acts that weren't the Beatles like what for the 66 tour what would have been uh, the circle or the, circle the Ronettes the Ronettes the circle there was a, a few more and Nobody cared. Nobody even, even listened. for the Ronettes. No, no, we were all there for the Beatles. I mean, I love the Ronettes. You know, the Circle. I like their song. Yeah. But no, we were just focused in on the Beatles. So you know, we were it's like, sitting we there don't want to hear Red Rubber Ball. We want to hear Red Red Rubber Ball. We want to hear that's, Yesterday. Yeah, that's right. And they only play. The thing is, they didn't sing that many songs. The Beatles in those days for these live concerts. You know, it was less than a half hour. So, I mean, it's nothing like McCartney does now. You know, he's on there for like forever. But it was like less than a half hour. Comparing those like half hour sets to the like three and a half hour extravaganzas he does now. Yeah, we. I was. I saw him last year again in in uh, Fort Worth, Texas, and he was on forever, and it was wonderful. And uh, that's one thing all Beatle maniacs do is they go see paul and ringo when they come in town i've seen ringo too quite a few times and paul but yeah in those days we didn't really care about the opening act they could have just went away you know and it's like i wouldn't care <laughs> hello to all the members of the circle listening to this yeah, because I'm, I'm sure they're all listening to fans yeah, on and the Ronettes, I'm yeah sorry but uh, sorry ronnie just yeah, we were not really that interested in in that, but it was it was fun. I mean, you can't say it wasn't fun. It, it was fun to just 
sit there and, and see them in person and people were holding up signs and we had a Victor Spinetti sign, but we couldn't bring it on the train. It was too big. <laughs> so we, we left it at home. I think we brought it to the Philly one the week before, but, uh, yeah, it, it was a different world. I mean, it, believe me, you know, being a fan that we, the way we celebrated it, it was a very different world back then. Yeah. Well, now I want to kind of ask you, when the Beatles, how did you feel when the Beatles kind of started getting more experimental, let's say? I, you know, me being a girl and I love their early stuff and their middle stuff. I wasn't too thrilled about the psychedelic stuff, you know, and the, <laughs> like the hearing Sgt. Of... Pepper for the first time. Well, that was a real incredible experience because I remember the first time I heard Sgt. Pepper, it was in the summer, I guess, of 67. Summer of love. Yeah, that's right. And I was in Center City, Philadelphia. I was on a date with this guy who was really nice. And and we were passing, I don't know if you know what a head shop is. Do you have any idea? These shops were where they used to sell not only drug paraphernalia. Oh, for, okay, yes. Yeah, but they sold post black like posters. Yes. They sold buttons. They sold, you know, vests. They sold all kinds of stuff, you know, psychedelic stuff. So I was passing an open door of one of these shops and they were blasting Sergeant Pepper, which had just probably been released that day or so or that weekend. And that's the first time I heard it. And I thought, is that the Beatles? Oh, my goodness. You know, it was very different for us, you know, who grew up with, you know, I want to hold your hand yeah. and stuff. And, all and of suddenly a sudden, hearing like they, within you, without you. Yeah. yeah, it was just different. And of course, I was in the stage where I was starting college and I was quite in a different stage anyway than where I was in 63, 64. But it was still a shock. And, you know, I really at the first I wasn't a fan of all that new stuff. But then, you know, I got used to it and liked it. It was like everything else, you know. Lastly, I want to ask you, where were you when you had heard that the Beatles had broken up? Good question. Um, let's see, where was I? I probably was in college, I think. And we, because there was a lot of rumors about them breaking up and a lot of things back and forth. With well, the to be fair, there were also a lot of rumors about Paul being dead. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, I remember that. Of course, I never believed that. But, you know, just thought this is funny. Play well, this album backwards. I, I always love to throw out this little clue for all our conspiracy theorists out there. Um, <laughs> I that When I go up to the mic, you know it's serious. If you play yeah. side one of Magical Mystery Tour back or backwards with your turntable upside down, you'll probably ruin your needle. <laughs> yeah. There you go. I, I would, Wisdom of the day. I, I would think so, yeah. Yeah. But no, I, I, I probably, when I heard about, I heard a lot of rumors about them breaking up. And then, you know, when I heard about them breaking up, it, it wasn't a surprise exactly because, you know, they had, there had been a lot of talk about them not getting along. And of course, when, you know, Yoko came along and then, you know, um, also when Linda came along, they, the, the whole dynamics changed in the group. So it wasn't surprising to me when I heard it, you know, with the, the definitive, well, there'll be no more Beatles. But then I thought, well, gosh, they've had so many wonderful 
years together and how many great songs. So, and then I thought, well, maybe they will get back together in the future because nothing is forever, you know? So um, I was kind of optimistic that in the future they might think about, you know, reforming like some groups did. Did, so. did you uh, keep up with the solo careers? You know, at that point, I, when I was working and then I, I went overseas for graduate school in 75, I didn't really keep up with their solo careers too much at all. I was kind of in a different time period for my life. And uh, living overseas at that time, you really didn't hear anything except um, in Scandinavia, except about ABBA. Yeah. Uh, no, really, a lot about ABBA when I lived in Stockholm. Well, ABBA's awesome, hear- though. Oh, I love ABBA. But I mean, you wouldn't hear about the Beatles in Stockholm in 1975 when I moved there. So I didn't really keep it up with that. The only time I would see stuff was in Newsweek and Time magazine and in the International Herald Tribune if they had a little, you know, something about them. So it was hard to to really keep up with them. And then, then, of course, I went on and I had my own family and stuff. So I didn't really keep up so much with their their solo careers at all until years later you know when i got back into it when family was a little bit older before i go into my uh, i call them quick fire questions i want to i want to ask you about your book okay the kind of weird question off this off the bat is that you on the front cover yeah it is me on the front cover and i'll tell you a quick story of how that came about I was working at, you know, the Beatles launched my journalism career. So I was a journalist for many, many decades. And this cover took place, it was shot in 1974 when I was a a young reporter at the big daily newspaper, the Philadelphia and Evening Evening and Sunday Bulletin. I I went up to my editor and I said, it's 10 years after Beatlemania started. I said, I'd like to write an article for the us uh, the the weekly it's a weekend magazine that we had called discover about 10 years after beatlemania and actually that was the the premise of my book actually when i when i wrote that story so they sent a photographer one of our photographers to my my family home where i had all my memorabilia mm-hmm. which we call it memorabilia posters and albums and everything and i actually had a a, a mini dress that I had worn that I still fit in it uh, 10 years later and they said we want you to pose for the picture mm-hmm. so that's me 10 years you, later you look very kind of mod there well yeah because we dressed mod um, actually the, the back in the 60s the big thing was you know if you were a beetle fan and you really were a crazy fan like me you dress mod i I wore mary quant kind of clothes long hair with bangs like patty boyd yeah white stockings white tights which were the rage in england but when it had never been worn in philadelphia so i had to buy nurses stockings believe it or not yeah because nurses wore white uniforms with white stockings and they didn't have the the mod uh you know white tights in in philadelphia yet so it was it was a new thing i walked down the street and people would look at me because it was a different way of dressing and you you know and that that was one of my mod little dresses and the cover was actually taken in my parents 
recreation room with all some of my memorabilia in 1974. <laughs> and for those who haven't read it, could you give us a brief summary of what your book is? Okay, a brief summary of the book. Let me let me see if I can get this right. Um, the book itself is it's 200 pages, and it's called Diary of a Beetle Maniac. It was published by Sinren Press, C Y N R E N, and it was actually published on John Lennon's birthday two years ago. So it's just which celebrating. is as of recording this, which will date the episode uh, yeah. yesterday. Yes, yeah, right, exactly. And the, and the thing is, I started a diary in 1962 when I was in grade school, and it was the platform for the memoir. Um, so the book is actually compiled from my diary, which I wrote a lot about Beatlemania after my scrapbooks, because all of us Beatlemaniacs, you know, kept scrapbooks, the old fashioned kind of scrapbooks, not the stuff they have today. Personal snapshots, I took lots of pictures at concerts and Beatle birthday parties and stuff. Interviews that I did and, and concert reviews. Of course, I reviewed every Beatle concert and Beach Boys and whatever. Um, it also features, and this is something I haven't touched on, um, I wrote a teenage column for a local newspaper when I, when I was 15 uh, and it was about it was about teenagers, and it was weekly. I wrote it with my girlfriend, and uh, uh, this book actually has a few of these columns in it. And the book details the I say the week by week escapades of our Beetle Buddy group, and it offers a look at what actually first general generation Beetle maniacs did back then. What we did every day, every week. Uh, so and it was a lot more than just, you know, attending concerts, as I've been telling you. So um, it, I read a lot about Victor Spinetti in it and also about Philly in the old days. Um, I found that the, the book kind of adds to the library of Beatle literature from the perspective of a Beatle fan who actually lived through it and who was young at the time. And since I was a journalist, I documented everything. So uh, that's actually what it is. And then I have interviews with Victor Spinetti in the back and one interview with Philadelphia's leading disc jockey at the time, who is now deceased. His name was High Lit. And he was very Ooh. big on the East Coast. High Lit. Look him up. High Lit. High Lit. H-Y, last word lit, L-I-T. And he brought the Beatles to Philadelphia in 1964. So that's what the book is about. And uh, as I said, the Beatles kind of launched my, my journalism career with this small little column that I had, um, which came about because I really wanted a press pass to see the Beatles in 64. So I called this little local newspaper and they laughed a little bit. And the editor, who was a lovely lady, said to me, well, you're a teenager. You know, would you like to write a column for us about teenagers? So I said, yeah, I didn't get paid for it. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it was fun. So I wrote a column with my girlfriend, Diane, uh, called Teen to Teen from uh, 1964 until college. And I was in college. I was still writing it. So it, it launched my journalism career. So I could say that the Beatles really helped that along. Now I get to go into my favorite part, 
The qu- actually, okay. no. Before I go into those, where can people find your book, Patty? Oh, okay. Well, they can find my book on Amazon, okay? Or if they want an autographed copy of my book, all they have to do is go on my website. I have a really neat website. I do a, a blog every month, faithfully. And the website is called diaryofabeetlemaniac.com. That's one word, diary of a beetlemaniac. If they go on there and, lend, and send a little note to me on my website and they want a autograph copy, I can give them an autograph copy and send it to them. Or they can also order it through my publisher in Philadelphia called Sinren Press, C-Y-N-R-E-N. So that's three ways to get the book. Okay, now I'll go into my favorite questions. <laughs> All right. I, I, I call these the quick fire, even though they end up not being very quick because yeah. they, you know, it always ends up into debate. What yeah. is your favorite Beatles album? You know, I'm going to tell you this and you're going to weep. Am I going to weep? You're going to weep because as a Beatle maniac, they're all my children. <laughs> they're all my children. I, I, of course, I, I have a little bit of preference for the earlier ones rather than the psychedelic ones, but they're all my babies and I, I, it's hard to choose between your children okay for some reason you're gonna have the ronettes be my baby stuck in my head for the rest of the day <laughs> all yeah. this talk about philly and the ronettes and the um, yeah, yeah right babies <laughs> be my... and anyways be my baby. <laughs> so yeah. undecided uh actually no i'm gonna try and make you pick one that you like the or one that you find yourself going back to the most um well i always liked listening to a hard day's night mm-hmm. the the uh, american I, one with the red cover yeah yeah the american with the red cover i always like listening to that and I, that, there's some instrumentals in there too from the movie well, i thought that was kind of cool i kind of like some of the instrumentals on on yeah. it too like that, the, you know that, this like, boy yeah yeah, yeah I, it's very good stuff but i mean if you, i mean it's not like my favorite favorite but to pick one out that i like to listen to uh you know or you know i mean it's there's so as i said it's like your children it's hard to choose <laughs> uh, okay well we'll we'll settle on a hard day's night okay now this will be kind of an interesting question as they are your children what is your least favorite Beatles album? You know, I think probably. Maybe, oh, you have an answer, and it's quick. Well, you know, some of the the most, more psychedelicy things at the end, the the last maybe one or two albums. I, you know, I, I was not so fond of all the psychedelic stuff that didn't make sense to me. So not I not a big have fan of maybe, I'm the Walrus. Yeah, it's like you know. I, it, it just got a, a little away from me. Let's put it that way. I mean, it's not that it's not great and everybody loves this stuff, but but for me, I, I'm still was kind of stuck in the middle stuff and the early stuff, you know, more than the last last couple albums. So, see, I answered that one. You, you did. <laughs> what is your favorite Beatles song? Okay, I I know. This is going to sound corny, but I, I, there is no corny. There is only the true answers. I, I like. I know it's corny. I love 
yesterday. I still love yesterday. Okay, so you oh, know how I said there are no corny answers. Okay. I retract the statement. <laughs> but also, in my life is another one okay. that I really love. Again, you're the second person who said in my life today. And it's... Oh. Yeah. You're, you you're not wrong. But then, as I said, they are my children, so I could keep going. You know. So. Okay. Let, let, let's up the let's up the stakes. What's your favorite? What's your top five? Oh my good gosh! Oh, I, I that's hard to. It's really hard to choose. I mean, I'd have to look at a whole list and say, well, that one, that one, that one, because oh, I I love La- I love Lady Madonna. Uh, I love Eleanor Rigby. Whoa, you know, Eleanor Rigby really always blows my socks off. And I like in my life, uh, uh, and I love her. I like a lot of this, you know, a little bit more lovey kind of early songs. <laughs> so, you know, that's a, that's a few. But I mean, there's so many of the later ones too. It's it's so hard to choose, you know. And lastly, I have a feeling you know where I'm going to go with this question. What is your okay. least favorite Beatles song? Oh, gosh. I guess... Uh, I think fixing a hole, you know, <laughs> it's like I'm not so good at that one. Um, I, I I see where you're coming from there. It's, yeah, I'm not. No, no. Um, I find know, myself I'm, when I listen to Sergeant Pepper side yeah. one, it's fantastic until it isn't, and then it just starts slowly losing me. It kind of yeah. loses me a little. Like I like getting better, not as much yeah. as I like Lucy in the Sky. Right, right. But then it goes to fixing a hole, and then it goes to yeah. she's leaving home, and I'm snoring by the end of it. Yeah, it's, it's me too. I you know. It's just that, but then other people love it. You know, I mean, it's like, it's just I feel so... like I'm missing a song there. I feel like I mm-hmm. omitted one. Do... Oh, oh, I know you were going to ask me, you had mentioned this before, who my favorite Beatle is. I, that I was. That was going to be one of the quick fire questions. Yes, I remember you had mentioned that. Yes. Uh, well, on February 9th, 1964, at age... 14 and a half, watching the Ed Sullivan show. Okay, wait, hold on. I'm going to interrupt you there. I did miss a song. Sergeant Pepper wins me back at the end of side one with being for the benefit of Mr. Kite. Oh, well, yeah, that's that's a good one. That's a good one. It wins wins me back. Wins you back. That is true. I just just needed to be thorough. I couldn't couldn't miss a Beatles song. No, 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 no. You this can't. is the podcast made by for and about Beatles fans. I, I would That's never right. hear the end of it if I left off a song off the of Sgt. Pepper. Nope, you wouldn't. And I, I wouldn't, wouldn't forgive myself. No, you, you shouldn't forgive yourself. Exactly. <laughs> you know, you shouldn't. <laughs> um, but get, getting back, though, to favorite Beatles, my favorite Beatle was, was chosen that night, uh, on Ed Sullivan in black and white because we had no color TVs, and uh, it was Paul McCartney. Okay. And it is still Paul McCartney up until this minute, the last time I checked. So was, uh, was John yeah. ruled out of the equation when there was that like little caption saying, "Sorry, girls, he's married." Uh, yeah. It's like uh, well, yeah, yeah. It's like oh, we, we well, knew- shit, can't pick yeah. him. No, we had we knew already because we had seen pictures of Cynthia with the baby, little Julian, and we like Cynthia. We it's funny the thing about early Beatlemaniacs, they 
They loved Cynthia. They thought she was great because she was already there. <laughs> they didn't like Patty Boyd. They didn't like Jane Asher. <laughs> and they, I don't think they liked Maureen too much uh, at the beginning. Oh, but, wait till um, I get to Yoko. <laughs> yes. But really, Cynthia was, you know, we knew he was married. So, well, of course, I had a lot of girlfriends who loved John, you know, even though he was a married Beatle. And, uh, Everybody, one of the interesting things, and I think you may know this, that you might not know this, is that we early Beatlemaniacs, and I like to call us vintage Beatlemaniacs more than first generation, yeah. but everybody seems to call them first generation. It sounds more distinguished that way. Yes, we're vintage yes. Beatlemaniacs. Vintage we, Beatlemaniacs. We are. Oh, that vintage. went German for some reason. I don't know why. <laughs> yes, Futen Himmel, the first generation Beatlemaniacs. First generation sounds strange to me, but we all picked one beetle that was going to be our favorite, and we stuck with that beetle. And and as I mentioned in my, in the, my book, we took on the character of that beetle. For example, I had a friend who loved Ringo. Well, she wore a lot of rings after that, and she had a St. Christopher's medal around her neck because Ringo wore a St. Christopher's medal. And John fans immediately start wearing these John Lennon caps, black ones, that matched, you know, John's. And it, it just went that way. You know, George fans, my girlfriend was a big George fan. She took up the guitar. She took lessons because she wanted to play guitar just like George. So we all How far did she up- get? She got really good at it. Now, I started taking lessons, too, and I got really bad at it, and I stopped. But she got good at it. She, Joanne really got to be a, a good little guitar player, and George was her favorite Beatle. So we all kind of took up a little bit of, you know, the personality of our favorite Beatle. That was also and, kind of the same with me. Like, John... Yeah started off as my favorite Beatle and I, I yeah. picked up the guitar because of him yeah. and now I can say I am I can play the guitar I'm not going to say I'm good <laughs> but you can play the guitar yeah. That's well and I again it also comes back to Beatle junk because I like to buy guitars that look like John's guitars of course of course there you although, go although Rickenbacker guitars aren't getting any cheaper I bet they're not. Yeah, but you know. luckily, I, I get you know, this is oh. one of my. You can't see it. It's I am holding my Epiphone EJ one sixty E. Sounds right. <laughs> and I will stop because I've already within the first second of the song messed up four of the notes. Oops. Oh. And back into the vault it goes. There it goes. That's right. And so here's my final question. It's serious because my voice is getting quiet. Okay. Why do final question. what do the Beatles mean to you? Or did I ask that question already? Uh I don't think so. You might have asked it another way, but um I think I could say that like the last chapter of my book is called Is There a Life After Beatlemania? And yeah, um, I wrote that what still can be heard loud and clear, okay, after so many decades, is simply the music. What do they mean to me? The music. The music was a message from the very beginning 
And even today, I mean, we're going into 2021, it remains today. Because I think what they mean to me is that they're timeless. Mm-hmm. They're really timeless. I mean, for you, who's very young, for me, who's very old, it's timeless. Mm-hmm. And, and they're all they're going to be there you know uh, at one time uh, I guess it was Brian Epstein said uh, you know I think that the kids will be listening to this in, in you know in in like 30 years or something yeah. well you know it's over 50 it was either years him or now. John Lennon who said the quote like the children of 2000 will be listening to the Beatles there you go where well, I'm that's, I'm the child of 2002 so that yeah. that quote still yeah. kind of applies that's right and, and you know I'm happy to see someone so young as you are that really is into the Beatles because that preserves it to the next generation and that makes me very happy because as I mentioned in my book my generation which are baby boomers and Beatle fans we're passing. I mean, we're not going to be here, you know, that long, sadly, like the part of life. But when I see my, my daughter's generation and your generation, it's it's still alive and it's getting more alive. Mm-hmm. I mean, look, look at all the the podcasts today. Look at all the books. Don't remind I mean, me of how many podcasts there are. There's there's a complete oversaturation of the market and yeah. I contributed, baby. That's right. But you know, that's good because that means that it's alive and living mm-hmm. and it's not dying and, it, and it's living with younger people. And that to me is a very important point that makes me very happy. And the other thing I just point out, and I might have said it in another way, is that the, the big one of the big reasons I wrote this book was so people of your generation and even after can see what we did how we acted as Beatles fans we just just didn't sit at concerts or you know cried or screamed there were a lot of things we did as part of the Beatlemania culture and that's why I really wrote the book wasn't to make money that's for sure (laughs) (laughs) because we all know the most lucrative business out there is Beatle books Oh, yeah. Well, mm. just trying to find a publisher for a bona fide publisher for a Beatle book. And they thought you were crazy. You know, if you didn't have a name, if you had a name, you you know, you could you could do that. Either either way, your book leads you to end up in the history books. So, yeah. 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 And by by the way, it's very exciting that the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, which is, you know, pretty well known has actually asked for my book and Marty's book is in there and I think Pat's too. They wanted a collection for their library archive of fan books. Yes, they do. They want the fan books there. So my book is in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as is Marty's, my friend. Now the important question is, is it signed? No, no, because it was was sent by my publisher directly there, so. Yeah, it isn't signed unless she forged the signature. <laughs> you never know. We will you know. soon find out things about your publisher. <laughs> yeah, I don't think she would do that. Yeah. I know her. She's good people. But any, anyway, yeah, yeah. But anyways, yeah. so the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Oh no, go ahead. I, did I interrupt you? you no, know, I just thought that the the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame thinks it's important enough to document in their library what the fans 
think and what they thought and how they acted. So I think that's important. Well, that makes too. it worthwhile in itself. Like you are in the archives for the rock and roll history. Yeah. Yeah. That's humbling, <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> well, now it's, it's, I said this before, now it's my favorite, favorite part, because now I get to turn it over to you. Where can people find you or your books? Oh, okay. The, the best Maybe not place. you specifically, because oh. we, we, we all yeah. like a bit of privacy. Yeah. The best place they can get in contact with me is through my website. And I think I mentioned Diary of a Beetle Maniac, one word. Dot com, <laughs> and they can contact me that way, or contact me for you know a copy of a signed book or whatever, or even tell me that they hate it what I said today. Anything they want, yeah. they can contact me. <laughs> yeah. So that's the easiest place that they can find me is is through my my uh, website. And as I said, I try to keep that up, really up to date, and with a every month with a, a blog. Oh, anyways. Patty, it, it's been, I, I've had a blast talking today. I had a great time talking to you too. And, and it's just been a lot of fun and, and nice, to, as I said, to see that young, young, you younger whippersnappers really, you know, enjoy talking to us older first generation vintage Beatle people who uh, have a story to tell. Still, I, I can't remember know. who I was talking to, but someone said I should try and trademark the phrase young whippersnapper in relation to the podcast. Yeah, young whippersnappers. That's perfect. It's a, it's a really good one. But it's true. I enjoyed I enjoyed today's conversation. And I had a lot of fun with it. So um, I thank you for having me on today and uh, oh, th- enjoy thoroughly. In, in case anyone listening i haven't quite figured out how i'm going to upload these it may all be in one it may be in several but if you haven't listened yeah. to the other two beetle actually no oh i forgot what i was going to do here's what yeah. i've been doing with the other two yeah in two words or less i said one word in, in as few words as possible describe the other two beetle babes okay let me see uh marty is uh Gosh, she's very smart. Uh, Pat is very uh, intuitive. Okay, so I've got a smart lady who's part of the Beetle Babes. Of course, Pat's smart too, and and Pat is is very intuitive. So I, I think that's that that's pretty good descriptions. They're they're also my age, and you know we kind of banded together as Beetle Babes because we thought, hey, you know, three of us. We, we all wrote uh, bi- autobiographies or memoirs of our time as Beatle people. We all had fan clubs as presidents or co-presidents. We all wrote books. And uh, the funny thing is we're all only children. Really? Which is very weird. Yeah. It's really funny. Well, there you and, go. And two of, two of them met Beatles. I never met a Beatle. You hear that, Paul McCartney? I never met you. And, Why are you uh, talking to him as if he's up there? He's not dead yet. Or is no, he? Please, bah, bah, bah. No. <laughs> right. please don't let him be dead. And uh, so we have a lot in common, uh, Pat, Marty, and I. And you know, as I said, we uh, we we kind of hang around at, at at the fest for Beetle fans, and we've known one another for a while. So uh, it's kind of fun, you know, to be the three Beetle babes. So. <laughs> well, now I get to do a little bit. I, I'm still working on this. My own self-plugging. So if you're watching this on YouTube, 
if you've enjoyed it, please hit that thumbs up button. It boosts my ego. Uh, please hit that subscribe button. Hit that bell notification icon just so you get notified every single time one of these awesome episodes come out. Um, this episode's available to stream. You may already be able to know that if you are streaming this episode. But we're on pretty much every platform that has ever been created in the history of podcasting platforms. Some of which I know about. Some of which I don't. Some of them Podbean just like, hey, you're on here now, you know? But I guess I'm on Stitcher. I'm on uh, Google Podcasts, I'm on iHeartRadio.com, I'm on Spotify, iTunes, and a bunch of other lesser platforms. Thank you. <laughs> oh, this this would be a lot funnier if it was video. She's doing kind of like interpretive miming to my plugging. <laughs> Just like... <gasps> but, yeah... <laughs> Oh, but yeah, you can listen to me. Give me five star ratings wherever you're listening to. Even if you don't like it, make up. Uh, cr practice your creative writing exercises. And instead of... yeah, Okay, I'm going to stop talking now because I feel like I'm digging myself into a hole that will be hard to get out of. But anyways, <laughs> enough of that. Take your pills, Ethan. No. Okay. Um, Patty... Thank you so much for talking to. Thank you so much, Ethan. I enjoyed this, and I enjoyed going down memory lane today. So thank you. To everyone thank else you. out there, thank you for listening. You can go home now. Fans on the run is produced by Ethan Alexander. Additional voiceovers by Jesse Phillips. This is a Showtown production.